Before we get into that, I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank Go Hunt, the optics department. My friend Cody Nelson of 20-plus years is the optics manager. If you guys have any optical needs at all, spotting scopes, tripods, binoculars, rifle scopes, anything to do with glassing, if you'd like to purchase any optics, give Cody a call at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can also send him an email at optics at gohunt.com. He answers those emails himself. He answers those phone calls himself. Make sure to tell him that I sent you, and uh, he's going to take care of you. I want to thank Go Hunt for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all my hunts. Uh, you can find out more about Kuyu going to kuiu.com. I want to thank Kuyu. Uh, also, PhoneScope, if you use the JScott19 promo code, PhoneScope is the digiscoping adapter I use to video and take photos on all my hunts. Use the JScott19 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there at PhoneScope.com. Uh, that's PhoneScope, and that's S-K-O-P-E, PhoneScope.com. Uh, also, OnXMaps.com. OnX I use on all my hunting and fishing trips. I actually use it in my real estate business as well. It's got a great private public land overlay. Uh, you can see who owns certain properties. You can see the boundary lines. Uh, I was just using the, the app this morning, tracking my uh, progress in, looking for a specific trail camera that I had set. Go to onyxmaps.com. Use the jscott19 promo code. You're going to save 20% on the Onyx phone app. Guys, thanks for listening to this podcast. Appreciate all your support. If you'd like to send me a message, you can on Instagram. That direct message at jscottoutdoors. You can also send me an email, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Let's get right to this episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a friend of mine, Chris Rowe from Rowe Hunting Resources. I've known Chris for a while now, and uh, Chris is a wildlife uh, bi biologist and uh, really has, a, has his finger on the pulse of animal behavior. Uh, Chris... Row Hunting Resources focuses on animal behaviors, and uh, one of the things that I specifically like about what Chris is doing at Row Hunting Resources with his content that he has online through his modules, he has elk modules, deer modules, and turkey modules, is he actually focuses on what exactly the animals are saying. And one of the things that I can benefit from that is you know, not just out there making elk calls or not just out there making turkey calls, I can actually go, oh, this is what the animals are saying or this is what the animals need to be hearing right now instead of just making a, you know, blind cow call. Uh, Chris's modules have really helped me. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have him on the show today to talk about row hunting resources and specifically today about his elk hunting module. Chris, how you doing? Doing all right, brother. How are you? Oh, I'm doing just fine. I'm excited to have you on. And, you know, I've had some great uh, guests on the podcast talking about uh, elk calling. And one of the things I wanted to have you on is because I believe there's a fundamental difference um, in, say, philosophy of uh, row hunting resources and some of the things that sh that you offer, as opposed to some of my other guests that are phenomenal callers and and are uh, very good in their own right. But your your stuff seems to be a little bit different. Do do you feel that there's a a difference in philosophy a little bit? I do. Obviously, I mean, I think probably I'm a little biased, but I mean, first and foremost, 
you're right. I, I've listened to uh, you know most of your podcasts, and and there are there's so many different ways to you know they talk about so many different ways to skin a cat. There's so many different ways to to hunt elk and call elk, and there's really no right or wrong way. I'm not gonna not gonna say, but I think you're right from my standpoint. I really do personally put a lot of focus in understanding why elk do what they do and when they vocalize what are they saying and what are they trying to accomplish when they're saying it i really do believe and and i think our module show our elk module shows this clearly you know elk do have certain vocalizations they have words just like we use words in our everyday lives in the english language or whatever language you speak Elk are the same. They are a very dynamic uh, social species, and they absolutely have specific vocalizations that they use for very specific purposes, and they expect a very specific outcome from that vocalization. And I, and for me, uh, understanding what those are, why they say them, has allowed me because I, I and. You know, this I think is another difference uh, for row hunting resources in the fact that our module, I hunt by myself. I hunt solo. I do not hunt generally with uh, another group of guys. I do, I do not have anybody calling for me back behind me. And if I do go hunt with somebody, sure, I will call for them or and with them. But 99.9% of the time, I'm the one doing the calling and I'm doing the shooting, which means I have to put an elk in front of me, in front of my effective range, in, in front of that opening. And so, and I also hunt on, on very heavily hunted public ground to where, you know, if I, if I call too much or if I call a lot or if I get an elk worked up and he's bugling his brains out, in five, ten minutes, there's going to be another hunter coming down the ridge and, and that just gives it a chance to to blow the opportunity so i have been i think my approach and what i teach and what i share on row hunting resources resources is more of a focus to what are they doing why are they doing it understanding why they do what they do so the solo hunter can go out there and have a high level of confidence to say okay if i blow a cow call not only do I know what cow call I'm going to blow and why I'm going to blow it, but more importantly, I know what the elk is going to perceive, I know what they're going to think, and I should have a, a reasonable expectation of what the outcome of my engagement is going to be. And that way, and, and when you start to understand why elk start doing things, I think it gives you much more flexibility in any situation that you're in to adapt and change the situation and do what what is needed to, to get that animal in front of you. And I, you know, I talk about calling to your toes. I literally, I I like calling elk to ten yards and, and killing them point blank, and and that's what row hunting resources elk module is about. Yeah, and I I think you know the other thing I might point out about the elk module is you know there's all kinds of advanced resources. You know, there's tons of educational, but one of the things that I think is so incredible about the module is the fact that everything that you talk about, you have video to show the elk doing that sound or acting in that certain behavior 
so that, and it, it, that's what uh, relates to me so much is that, you know, I can watch your elk behavior. I can watch the, you know, the see you first, the doorway. Um, I can listen to all of the different cow elk and bull elk vocalizations where you've broke down specifically on the module per video. You know, you've got the chirp, the mew, the lost mew, the assembly mew, the demanding mew, the selfish mew, you know, you've got, you know, and, and, and many more. You've got contact bugles, dominant bugles, chuckles, you know, check bugles, roars. I guess my point is you, you, you have dissected elk vocabulary and elk behavior and, and you're able to show that with video, which to me, I'm kind of a visual guy and I kind of need to see it and then I need to kind of hear it and then go, oh, I've heard that all the time. That's what, you know, Chris is calling a, you know, a, a challenge bugle or, or that's what he's calling a selfish mew. And, oh, I've heard that. I thought that was, you know, I thought that was the estrus call. Oh, it, now I see it. I, I, and now I can relate to what I've seen in the woods. And I think that's what's so awesome about row hunting resources. And I think that's some of the, the you know, every, Every season before elk season, when I spend a lot of time on on row hunting resources in the elk module, that's what I take away from it. Well, and, and I, a I'll agree. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because for two reasons. Um, number one, I, the real easy one is I've always been the type of person. You know, I I started my career out as far as you know this type of stuff, given seminars, and you know I've attended a bunch of seminars over my life and and anybody can get up and flap their gums at you and and some people are better at it than others but you unless you see it happening a lot of times you you have this doubt in your mind you're like hmm I don't know about that well that's the whole point of why we do the video I, you know I can flap my gums and I can tell you every anything I want to tell you but it's not until I can show you say okay if I'm going to talk about a glunk or if I'm going to talk about uh, assembly me or whatever, then I can say, here's here's what it is, here's what it means. Don't believe me. Don't take my word for it. Watch this next video or next five or ten or whatever and watch the elk do it themselves. But more importantly, watch and listen and then watch the body language, watch the posturing, and watch the other elk react to that. Now, that's and that's what I love about it, but the other thing that I hope, you know, and, and you and I have talked about it before, you just nailed it, that some everybody learns differently. Some people learn by reading. Some people learn best by doing. Other people learn from a visual. Well, what we try to do with our videos is do a little of everything. We, we try to have it to where it's very visual um, so that way you can hear it, you can see it, you can practice with it, and you're you're... It's not you're you're not practicing with me. You're practicing with a cow elk. You're practicing with a bull, or you're practicing with ten other bulls, or whatever. So yeah, I, I having the video, and and that is also why we do everything online because it are the, the module is like a library. So you know we were talking about before this. I'm literally sitting in front of my computer right now, and I've got about a dozen new videos that I'm getting, I'm working on that are going to be uploaded to the elk module this summer. It's, you know, you have instant access to so many video resources that, I, you know, you can't do with a book. You can't do with a magazine. 
you can do it kind of with a DVD, but then you, you have to keep buying a, a tangible item. With a with what we do on the line, man, you, you can take it with you wherever you want it. Well, yeah, you can use it on your mobile device. Yeah. I mean, you can be in Elk Camp if you have service, and you can be pulling some of that stuff up to get, you know, refreshers of, you know, what just happened that morning, and, oh, this is what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm um, proud of it, but I'm, I'm glad you like it, and I know that a lot of other people like it, too, and so... You know, and, and not to mention to have the, the forum where it's Row Hunting Resources members that subscribe to the elk module, um, you know, being able to ask questions and, and chat with each other, having watched some of the videos and listened to some of your expl ex explanations and be able to, you know, dive into it deeper. And not only that, have you come in and, you know, kind of... Um, lead the lead the conversation along uh is is a incredible resource chris one thing that when i first heard it it just blew me away and it, it really made a lot of things you know kind of come full circle and that is talking about your elk behavior talking about the doorway talking about see you first hear you second um smell you third can you talk to me a little bit about those things yeah, you bet. I, you know, I, I truly believe that. I don't care if you listen to anything that I talk about on my calling. I don't care if you're the best caller in the world. It does not matter if you don't have your setup right. And I think that one thing right there, above all else, if a hunter, if a, if an elk hunter. It takes a minute to focus on getting their setup right. Then so many other things are going to fall into place from a from a success standpoint of your calling effort, and all the way down to finally you know punching your tag, having a shot opportunity. And again, when we're talking about solo hunting, you know that is even more critical. Everybody always, always, always talks about elk that hang up. They, you know, they, they hung up at 80 yards, they hung up at 100 yards, or whatever. They hung up just out of range. And quite honestly, the fact that elk hang up just out of range is why the two-person or, you know, multiple-caller uh, strategies essentially became developed. Because you put the shooter out front, you put the callers in the back, that way you're pulling the bull past that shooter, because he's, you know, if he's responding to the, the callers that are 100 yards away, well then hopefully if he quote-unquote, hangs up 100 yards from the callers, well, he's still in range of the guy that's shooting. Well, it, it absolutely works, but it's not until I started focusing and, and paying attention, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why are they hanging up? If, if the bull was 400 yards away from me when I first started calling, and he made up 320 yards and then stopped at 80. Well, it's not because I wasn't calling correctly. Well, he just came 320 yards. Of course I was calling correctly. He, he responded. If the wind is in my face, well, he didn't smell me. If I've got good camouflage on and I didn't move, well, he didn't see me. What in the world? Why is he hanging up? Well, the most obvious answer is, well, he got to a point where he should be able to see that animal calling. Yes. And so if we start to pay attention to say, okay, where is that animal going to stop? Where is, how is that animal going to move across the landscape? I, you know, in my seminars, I, I would put it in, in terms of how we ourselves 
uh, how we walk through our own houses, all right, our, our, our own home. You know, if we're sitting down on the li- in the living room on the couch watching the ball game or something, and our spouse or our kids call to us and need our assistance in the in the back bedroom, well, we don't go to the garage looking for them, right? I mean, we know what our house is and, and the layout of our house, and we know where that that vocalization where they called to us from. So. Most of us are going to get up out of our couch, you know, we're going to walk across the room, up the stairs, around the corner, down the hallway, and we're going to go to the room that they're, they're talking from. And most people get that concept. They're like, okay, well, yeah, they, you know, the, you know, the bedding area on a mountain is, is their bedroom. And that meadow down below is the feeding area. And the, the elk trail that goes up that ridge, that's their hallway. Most people get that concept. But where I take it a step further with the doorway principle is, is saying, okay, let's go from there. Let's think about what you and I do. If we get up out of a chair and, and we go up the stairs, around the corner, down the hall, and we get to the bedroom where we think our, our wives are calling to us from, what do we do? If you think about it, most of the time, and, and most of these things happen almost instantaneously in our brain, we get to the doorway of that room, and we instantly go visual, and, and it happens in milliseconds. If we get to the doorway of that room, and our spouse is standing where we can see them, we instantly see, we recognize, and if they're doing something, we instantly go, oh, there you are. That's what you're doing. You must need help. And we continue on into that room and we go and we engage them. But say we get to the doorway of that room and we step in and they're nowhere to be seen. Do we, A, either you know, walk into the room and we just circle the, the room around and around and, and try to you know, find them? Or do most of us pause, vocalize, say, uh, where are you? And then wait for a response. And then maybe they're in the closet and they say, oh, can you come in here in the closet? Oh, okay. I can't see you in the closet, but I hear you in the closet. So now I'm going to move through this room. I'm going to move through the doorway. I'm going to move across the room and I'm going to go to the doorway of the closet. And then I'm going to reevaluate from there. If you think about it, most of us do that. We, We pause at that point where we think we should be able to see whoever's vocalizing you know, to us, and if we don't see them, we pause and we either vocalize, we pause, we wait, and we try to figure out what's going on. Elk are no different. The only thing that we need to do is flip how we assess our setups. And the one thing that I tell people is, if you know, most of us bull bugles a long way away we call he responds we make up distance he makes up distance and at some point it's going to be close enough to where we need to get set up most of the time we fall back on ourselves and we say okay where do i need to set up so i have you know the most shooting lanes or where do i need to set up to where i can see him approaching or whatever we assess what we need in order for 
us to be able to make that shot or for our camo to blend in or for us to get as much cover to help you know hide us when we draw our bow we think about what we need first and then we hope the elk comes all the way through and gives us a shot opportunity unfortunately most of us don't stop to think okay that elk is walking through his house where is the doorway to the room, quote-unquote, that I am calling from? Where is he going to naturally stop? If we stop and take two seconds, and it takes a little practice, but you, you'll get it. If we take two seconds and assess what's around us, where the bull is coming from, how he's coming, and, and what he's walking through, if we take two seconds and go, where is the the natural opening where he is going to stop to look into this area, if we identify that first, then make sure we get set up within effective range of that location or that area, it, it absolutely blows your success rate out of the water. I mean, it just absolutely, it, your success will go up exponentially because now not only is that elk going to walk right to where you think he's going to walk? Not only is he now you're set up to where you have a clear shot opportunity at that, but more importantly, you don't have to make any sort of vocalization to stop the bull. You know, a lot of other you know people say all the time that, you know, some of the problems they've had is, you know, that animal's walking through and walking, walking, and they, and they try to stop him, and either can't stop him and he walks right through the shooting lane and he's gone, or when he when they make a vocalization, they try to stop him and, and he spooks a little bit and he shifts and turns or moves and now he's out of position or he's at a bad angle and now he's looking straight right through him and now they can't draw their bow, they can't get a shot, and the, and the setup's blown. If you set up within range of that doorway, you don't have to say anything because he's naturally going to pause there. It's It's... It's it's a beautiful thing. Once you start looking at it from the doorway principle, your setups, that is, I think, the number one issue that most most people have, you know, with their success each year is just making sure their setups are correctly, and that's what that doorway principle talks about. That's awesome stuff. And, Chris, give me an example of, say, what what are the majority of the doorways that you see? Give me kind yeah. of a... You know, is it a meadow? Is it a what is it that you look for in that scenario? Ninety percent of the time, it's a transition between cover. So, you, you like you said, the meadow. If if you know the elk are coming out and and feeding in a meadow, say they're going from thick dark timber out into a meadow. Well, the doorway itself very well could be the edge of the meadow. If the if the timber is so thick and dark. They, they might have to literally walk out, poke their head out of the timber and look into that meadow to be able to see where, you know, where something is. Or you might have, they, they might be in that thick bedding area, that thick, nasty, dark green timber, but then there's an aspen stand. And that transition between the dark timber and that aspen stand, or that aspen stand into an open meadow, it's that transition point. Most of the time, for me, I've seen it's just that transition type or transition between the type of cover, how dense and thick it is. Sometimes it is terrain. Sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll come up and they'll poke, you know, maybe you have a bench 
and either they're below the bench, they're above the bench, or whatever, they come up and they'll stand right on the edge of the bench and they'll look over. Or they'll come up to it and they'll, they'll just peek up over the top or, or over a saddle. Sometimes it's terrain, but generally speaking, it is at that transition point where they can't see from, you know, it's, it, they can't see in from where they are, where they're coming from. And it's that point where they can step out and now they have visual clarity to be able to see where you're calling from. Sometimes the doorway is, you know, 10 yards. I mean, it's, it's a very short, tiny, defined little, little point on the map. Other times, like, you, you know, you're talking, hunting some of these big, well, for you down in Arizona, sometimes these big open stands of ponderosa pine, or for some of us that hunt big stands of aspen, sometimes they can look 200 yards out across that open country. You know, if that's the case, you know, they could stand 200 yards away. Well, now I've got to try to figure out, okay, how can I position myself to where maybe I've got some thick, nasty stuff behind me? Maybe I have a clump of thick uh, garbage blowdowns or, or just a patch of timber or something. Some sort of feature that is going to block his ability to see beyond it in order to get him to come across that. But it's usually that transition zone from one cover type or one cover density to another. Do you think having good setups and being able to recognize the doorway is more important or equally important as sounding really good with your calls? To be honest, as much as I talk about calling and, and, and effective calling, I will say that your setup is more important. And the only reason why I say that is we've all been there to where either A, we've got a buddy that just can't call to save his life and, and just sounds horrible, but yet somehow he, he, he or she's successful. But more importantly than that is it, you're dealing with testosterone. You're dealing with an animal that's that's ramped up and, and starting to get in that breeding cycle, that breeding urge. You've got younger animals, you've got older animals. Sometimes that testosterone just, I mean... It's crazy what they will do and what they'll respond to. And there's some animals that just sound horrid anyway. So even if you're not the best caller, as long as you're, you've got the intent right and you're calling from the right area, you know, again, if, you know, I, there's another example I give and we can talk about it here in a minute if you want to about, you know, why am I saying what I'm saying and, and the sentences I'm building, you know, as long as you're in the right area where calling makes sense, Sometimes those bulls, especially the younger bulls, they don't care. They hear something, they're just going to come running in because it, one of the things I talk about is, you know, you never make an elk do anything except maybe run away. All you can do is put in their mind what maybe they ought to do or what's in their best interest to do at the time. And when we're dealing with bulls ramped up on testosterone, you know, you mentioned the see you first, hear you second, smell you third principle, you know, the see you first visual communication, body language is is crucial for elk. And so it is in their best interest to be the first one on scene to make visual contact with, say, a cow that's, that's vocalizing. And, and, you know, if a bull wants that cow and there are other bulls in the area, sometimes the first bull on scene is the one that has the best opportunity to take that cow and, and pull him into her harem or her his harem. So you can be a bad caller and still see success if you get your setups correct because the other the, uh, the the flip side of that is is equally 
well, I guess not true. You can be the best caller in the world, but if you don't have your setups right, you won't be successful. You just won't. Yeah, I mean, that's what you're saying there is really nobody else is saying that. And that, that that's, I want to expose that because I think that's such a fundamental thing that, you know, people focus so much on trying to sound good. But like you say, they, they may sound good and they may be saying the right things, but they're saying it from the wrong position, such as you're in that scenario where your wife's calling you from down the hall, in the room, whatever, up the stairs, and you're on the couch and you may be answering her, what do you need, what do you need? Well, you're not going to have that interaction because she's not going to tell you what she needs from three rooms away. She wants you to be... Yeah you know, right there close to say, I'm trying to hang this picture. Will you grab the thing? Get, yeah. you know, get in. I here. need your help. Come here. Right. Okay. okay. Right. All right. Well, I, I'm telling you, Jay, I mean, that's the thing is I would much rather deal with 10 good, effective, efficient hunters in the same valley that I'm dealing with than one or two idiot hunters. I, you know, I, if, if you're a good, if you understand these things and, and you're able to implement them, then you can get in and out and surgically engage those elk and, and slip right back out without ever disturbing them. Or you just get in there, you, you fill your tag and then you're out rather than just chase, chase, bump, 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 spook, spook, spook. And then all of a sudden the, the whole valley's gone. I mean, you're, you're done. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. I just, yeah. Awesome stuff. Um, Chris, in, in knowing your elk module, your strategies in action, I think, are pretty awesome because y you actually set up certain scenarios. Um, and I guess I need to make the listeners aware, inside the elk module, you have, you know, elk gallery, which has all the bull elk, cow elk uh, vocalization, the glossary. You can actually see the elk doing that you know, sound, but then you have the strategies in action. Talk to me a little bit uh, about how you, why and how you formulated the strategies in action. And I assume that it's because you wanted to be able to take people from hearing all of that and seeing those sounds and hearing those sounds to actually implementing them. And then it, you walk people through in actual calling situations of this is what the bull's doing, this is what I need to do now, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And just so the listener has a visual of, of what we're talking about, when you go in the elk module, I have it split out with what I call foundation principle. Imagine a pyramid. You know, in your mind, think of a pyramid that has different levels. You remember that old food pyramid that we all, we all see when yeah. growing up? You know, you have the grains at the bottom and then sweets are at the top. Well, imagine that Imagine that food pyramid, all right? The the foundation principles are a series of videos that, you know, the, that are the foundation of just calling and understanding what you're doing. So elk, elk behavior, cow elk vocalizations and communication, bull elk vocalization and communication, those in understanding cow calls and understanding bugles and bugle to all that stuff is the foundation principles. What once you see that, you go, okay, now I understand. Then, like you said, you got the gallery where now it's what I I kind of label it as that recognition. So we move up on that pyramid a little bit to where now you the gallery just shows just raw 
video footage of elk doing what elk are doing. Not a hunting situation. There's there's no hunting whatsoever. It's just me or Kelly or someone just videoing elk doing what elk are doing. No interaction by humans whatsoever. It's elk, period. Done. Well, that allows you to kind of recognize and see what it is that we just talked about in the foundation principles. Well, the next step, if we go up on the strategies in action, the, the strategies in action videos, we go to the next step up on that pyramid, you're absolutely right. We, we talk about the foundation. Okay, here, here, are the, here are the meat and potatoes, nuts and bolts of what we're talking about. Okay, you went and you looked in the gallery and you can see, and, and now you recognize what the elk are doing. Okay, the strategies in action now is saying, okay, well, let's take that. Now let's put it in play. Let's let's go out into the field and let's do it. Let's let's we're we're going to use the doorway principle. We're going to use the see you first, hear you second, smell you third. We're going to use it. You know, I break out some of my uh, in the elk hunter strategy app. It's a it's a application kind of function that we created that allows you to go through and play through different scenarios and and learn about different scenarios. Well, in there, I talk about a, a passive strategy targeted strategy or aggressive strategies how do you want to go and engage these animals do you want to do it very passively do you want to do it targeted where you're going right at them and very purposefully or is it a situation where you need to be very aggressive and, and let's use an aggressive strategy well in the strategies in action it is it's just okay we're in the field we're in september or early october we're calling animals and we're going to put all these things in play and let's see how it unfolds. And some of the videos are me just going out there and calling and we see what happens. Others, though, and, and this I think is important to show kind of, of the fact that what I'm talking about is, has some legitimacy in the fact that, you know, some of these videos I'll say, okay, here we are. This is what the situation is. And before I even make one vocalization or one call, I say, this is the strategy I'm going to use. This is why I'm going to use it. And bam, I do. And we either call an, you know, call an animal right straight to the camera or we don't. And I talk about why. So that's what the strategies in action video series does. And that's what I'm working on now. I've got a pile of other ones that, you know, from last year that, that, I'm putting in place. Some of them are active hunts. Some of the hunts that I have done and been on and videoed and, you know, maybe we kill an elk or maybe I don't kill an elk, but they're an actual hunt. Other ones are just strictly, you know, me going out in the woods calling with a video camera and nothing else. Yeah, and let me ask you a question. You've spent some time in Arizona um, and you've spent some time hunting other states. My question would be, in, in, let's compare, let's say, Colorado and Arizona. For the listeners out there, how would you compare calling elk in Colorado as a... Did you notice any differences in calling elk in Arizona? Well, other than, aside from the fact that, you know, in some of the areas that I was in Arizona are... They're, you know, managed more for that trophy management. So you've got way more bulls. You know, your bull-to-cow ratio is much, much, much higher than in, in some of the areas that I was down there in Arizona than where maybe some of the over-the-counter areas that I've hunted in Colorado. You know, in Arizona there, you correct me, I'm just going to take a stab. What are you dealing with, 50, 60 bulls per 100 cows? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the unit, but sure. you know, mo most of the units that you were in nine and twenty-three are the four, you know, 
they try and manage for, I believe, 40 bulls, 40 to 50 bulls per cow. There you go. So, you know, some of our over-the-counter areas in Colorado that hunt, literally we might be 15 to 25 bulls. So you've got fewer bulls to deal with. And and we're talking, just to be clear, 15 to 20 per hundred, and I was saying 40 to 50 per hundred. Yes, yes. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. No, good clarification. Um, so right there, we're dealing with fewer bulls as far as the population goes, number one. Number two, um, also age structure. You know, in Colorado, in many areas, you're dealing with a much younger age, age structure of bulls. But to be honest, I've hunted, I've had the, the, the pleasure of hunting Wyoming, Colorado. And now in Wyoming, it was, it was not a trophy managed unit. However, I was very fortunate to be behind a gigantic uh, private ranch. So it, it, we were the only people, I mean, when I say miles, I mean boom, miles. So we were in the middle of nowhere. Um, so the bulls up there were just like what I saw down in Arizona. I have hunted limited draw units in Colorado from very, very trophy-oriented uh, units up in the northwest part of Colorado. They are the same up there as they are where I was hunting last year in the center part of the state. It's a four-point unit, so it's not really a quote-unquote trophy unit, but it just has a higher quality. I've hunted New Mexico on private land on a, on a piece of ground that is managed for elk, and, and the same thing goes. So the only difference, I mean, I've always said elk are elk are elk. I mean, elk behavior is elk behavior. Now, we might have a, you know, there might be, might be a discussion on is the behavior of a Roosevelt elk different than the behavior of a Rocky Mountain elk? We That might be a conversation. But when we're talking about Rocky Mountain elk, elk behavior is elk behavior. Elk vocalizations are elk vocalizations. The only thing that I see that is different is how those animals react to and interact with the habitat and the pressure that they they deal with on a daily basis. So in some of these over-the-counter units where I am in Colorado, they're they they are not as vocal. They don't. I mean, they just don't get rip roaring, cranking like you see in some of these you know trophy managed areas. But they respond exactly the same when they do a contact bugle. It means the exact same thing whether you're talking about New Mexico, Arizona, New Mexico, you know, Wyoming. Doesn't matter. You know, I and I take a step back. I, you know, and I say contact bugle. Sometimes people will call that a location bugle. Um, but regardless, you know, if they're going to bugle that way, it means exactly the same thing across the board. When a cow does a lost mew or an assembly mew, it means the exact same thing. And because of that, you can expect the same sort of reaction, and that everybody's going to understand it. So. There really is no difference, and I, I hope that that comes out and it comes across in the strategies and action videos because, you know, some of the, t- the the two latest videos that I have up there are active hunts. They are from Colorado. They're on over-the-counter areas. That's where other people are hunting, and I do exactly what I do in all the other videos, and I show you the exact same result. Yeah, and it's good stuff, I can attest. I haven't seen the, the <coughs> two new ones, but um, the strategies in action are awesome. Um, in your opinion, if you could pick one mistake that you think people make while elk calling slash elk hunting, the single 
biggest mistake, what would it be? If I, for call, if, if we're talking specifically with calling. Calling with an application of calling wall elk yes. It is going to be a very strong toss-up between just bugling for no, I mean, bugling way too much and too aggressively for no reasonable purpose or just throwing way too many cow calls out there just all sorts of people say i want to sound like an elk and, and in their mind that means just making all sorts of sounds and just just throwing them all over the place just going nuts it's like okay what again now I'm not saying that's not going to be successful because there are some people that have success with it. But when you look across the landscape and say, okay, on average, you know, what's their percent success on, you know, if we say I have 10 encounters with a bull or 10 elk, you know, what's my percentage in calling those animals in? A lot of times the people that don't understand, in my opinion, if they don't understand why they are doing what they're doing and what they're doing, they're just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and hoping to see what sticks. I think that right there ends up costing people more than uh, other than just calling. I think that is the one or those things that cost the people the most. Yeah, and I I really agree with you. It's kind of like a good analogy would be like if you were. You had your turkey box call in your hand, and you were going to go out and turkey hunt, and you have learned to yelp on the box, you've learned to cluck on the box, you've learned to purr on the box, you've learned to gobble on the box, and it would be as if you went out there, and you sat down by your tree, and you heard a bird gobble, and you went, yelp, 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 you yelped, you went, put, 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 you clucked, you went, put, you purred, and then you gobbled on the same box. I mean, yes, those are all sounds yeah. that turkeys make, yeah. but you are making them simultaneously be right behind each other, and that's not natural. And I think, for me, one of the biggest mistakes I think people make, specifically talking about Arizona, is they like to bugle, they like to get the elk to answer, and then they like to continue in to the elk still bugling. Yeah. And what I find is most of the bulls in Arizona, you know, reach, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, even older. And they've seen that program of the hunter bugling, you know, Oh, I haven't heard the bull in a while. Let's bugle again. And then let's move another 50 yards and let's bugle again. Yeah. And it just doesn't work. Just, but, that does not work. And, and the thing is, it's, it's and I'm not going to say, you know, Arizona, you, you know, I, you and I have talked about this, you know, some areas. Well, let's, uh, let's use your example. Um, we talked last year about you had an opportunity. You've always hunted, you know, you guide in, in Arizona, but you had an opportunity last year to hunt Montana. And in Arizona, you've, we've talked about the fact that they just don't seem to respond to bugles like they do with cow calls. Whereas you went to Montana 
And my gosh, you could, I mean, cow call, big deal. You throw a bugle at them, and they just come unglued. Oh, it was unbelievable after a couple of days. I mean, I sweet-talked a few bulls, and but as soon, Jason, he's like, you have a bugle? And I said, yeah, it's back at camp. He goes, let's bring it tomorrow. About, I don't know, halfway into the first morning, he's like, do you have that bugle? And I said, yeah. And he goes, give it to me. And he takes it out, and he rips out a bugle. Then he starts just stomping on this tree. And I'm not talking about, like, raking a tree. I'm talking about, like, Jason Harrison got in a fight with this tree. <laughs> and, I mean, he's bugling, and he's jumping up and down, and he's breaking branches and going crazy. And I'm thinking, if you did this in Arizona, you know, the elk would laugh at you. But the reality is they probably wouldn't. And he goes crazy, and all of a sudden, five or six or seven bulls all around us just light up. And they started coming our way. Yeah. And so I learned a good lesson there in that, you know, sometimes what works at your home turf doesn't, you know, m might not work or you might find things that, that work better. And, you know, I definitely learned that bugling in Montana is, is uh, definitely a way to get those bulls really fired up. Well, and the, the point being, and this is something that I talk about in all my stuff and why I, I set up my strategies the way I do is, you nailed it. Not uh, not all areas are created equal. It's not that it's it's not that bugling doesn't work, or it's not that bugling works. Of course, it's a tool. You're you're calling, and I think people need to realize this, or I wish more people realize this. The calling that you're doing is is nothing more than a tool. Dan Evans has killed more big bulls than I know of anybody else, and I don't think he hardly calls at all. He stalks them like a mule deer. And he, I mean, he smokes some great big bulls. Whereas you've got folks like uh, Corey Jacobson, he loves to bugle. You just did their podcast with him, and he talks about he. That's what he wants to do. He wants to find the bull that wants to to come to a bugle. That's what his passion is, and so that's what he does. And those are two ends of the spectrum. But what people need to realize is that isn't the end all be all. You don't have to just pick one. And, and you know, there, there's an old adage. To the person who has only a hammer, the entire world ends up looking like a nail. Okay? So not every tool is going to fit every situation. And so, you know, some I have a perfect example. I uh, is in Colorado, over-the-counter unit. I literally, it was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and all of a sudden I'm up next to this bedding area, up in the dark timber, up towards timberline, and these two bulls start cutting loose. And I, as soon as I hear them bugle, I'm like, they're dead. I mean, one of them these is dead. I mean, these are callable. That, done. So sure enough, I sneak my way in, get set up, boom, hit him with a targeted strategy. And I mean, I put one right smack dab in my lap. Boom, shoot him. He goes down. Yay, I filled my tag. Well, meanwhile, the second bull is losing his mind. That Now his buddy isn't anywhere around. He's not answering. No, he's not. And now I stopped calling. I don't need to call anymore because I'm, I'm, you know, quartering up my elk. Well, this elk is just going nuts. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to have some fun with this thing. And so I, every now and then I throw him a cow call and, and I'm, or just a mew or whatever. And this thing would – so he's circling me in the dark timber, okay, it just screaming his head off. Well, about halfway through – and I'm quartering this elk, okay. At some point I know this bull smelled me. Well – about halfway through me quartering this elk, I can hear a hunter coming up the up up the ridge, and he's bugling. 
And as he gets caught, I mean, he is just, I mean, he's laying it out. I mean, he's just doing, you know, beautiful competition-style bugle. Well, every time he bugles, the bull would shut up and just stand there and be silent. And then the guy would continue coming. So all of a sudden, here we get the situation where the hunter bugles, the bull shuts up. The bull goes silent for five to ten minutes, and then no, there's nothing going on in the woods anywhere. All of a sudden, the bull starts up again. He bugles a couple more times. He gets cranked up, and all of a sudden, the hunter bugles at him again. Bull shuts up. And I'm literally, for like 10, 15 minutes, he's going back up. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're bugling at this bull. Just throw him a cow call, and he's going to run over you. And... I, I mean, I finally did. I just, at the top of my voice, I just yelled across the, the woods. I was like, use a cow call! Bull bugles <laughs> at me. You know, I mean, just, I was like, if you get stuck on doing the, the same thing over and over again and not realizing that there are other tools in the toolbox, you're going to limit yourself. If you go to Arizona, or you, I don't care where you are, if you go to an area where the elk generally want are, are responding to cow calls, you should be able to use cow calls and use them effectively and know what you're saying. Whereas, you might throw out all these cow calls in the world and not get a response, but now you have a bugle with you. If you can transition and say, okay, well, they didn't want a cow call. I know what I'm doing with my bugle. I start using a bugle. Boom. You use the tool that is going to fit the, the task at hand. And I think that's, you know, some of these people that just go in the woods and, and say, I want to sound like an elk. Well, I've got video footage of Rocky Mountain National Park. I can put, I can park you in the middle of a herd of 300 elk. The only thing you're going to hear are the magpies out there squawking. I mean, they're they're dead silent. Just because there's a lot of elk doesn't mean there's a lot of sound. So, it, I don't know. I, I think for calling purposes, back to your original question, I think if if you're just throwing stuff at the wall hoping to see what sticks, yes, you can be successful if you find the right bull that wants to play your game. But in some of the areas, that, at least, that I know that I hunt, you might be walking by one, two, three, a half dozen elk in the woods that you never even know they're there that are willing to work a, co- a call, but just not the ones that you're throwing at them. Sure. And I think that's where the elk module, row hunting resources, really comes in, and it's worth its weight in gold. Um I want to commend you on the job you've done with it. It's unlike any resource I've seen. And I want to thank you for being on today, but I want to give you a chance to let people know where they can find you, uh, how they can find you. Um, And I just appreciate you being on with us today. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. I I, I always enjoy talking with you. But, no, if people want to check it out, like I said, it's kind of like an on – it's a – you basically, what you do is you subscribe, and you kind of get a, like a library card. So, you know, it gives you access, and then everything that's in there is is open for you to, to look at. And like I said, I'm building more stuff right now, and I'm constantly adding it. So, yeah, I I like it. I'm I'm proud of it, but it's a work in progress, and I, I I'm still not satisfied with all the stuff that I could have in there, and I'm I'm working on that. So, but if people do want to check it out, it's just RoeHuntingResources.com. It's R O E huntingresources.com and if you go to the main main page there you know, you know there's a place where you says sign up and and you can you know for the elk module there's two there's two different ways that you can access the elk information either just sign up for the elk module itself which just opens up the the elk library 
and you can have a, it basically gives you a three month pass to the Elk Library, or you can get the full annual subscription. So it's 365 days from when you sign up, and it opens up everything. So everything's there for you to, to peruse through. But either way, you can just sign up. Um, and, and, and when you say everything, not to interrupt you, but sure. when you say everything, what you mean then is the full turkey module, sure. which goes yes. through all of the turkey vocalizations and all of the turkey behaviors, yep. and the uh, deer module, which goes through all of the white-tailed deer uh, behaviors and, and all the cycles of the rut and the, and the noises they make and the behavioral patterns and such. Yeah, and, and that's a good clarification. Yeah, and by, by I mean... By far, the the biggest module is our elk. That that is where I started. That is my passion. That is what I what I focus on. Turkey, I've got some stuff in there, and then deer is just there's a few things in there. Deer, and I'm going to do some more with some of the habitat stuff that we do here in Kansas. But regardless, the elk module is by far the the largest one, and the one that I add the most to. So, and and like I did for you guys with the with the turkey one. Anybody that, that listens to this podcast and wants to sign up, if they go, there's a spot. If you if you click the sign up, there's a spot lower down on the information page that says if there's a coupon code or discount or whatever. If they type in J. Scott Podcast, all one word, just J. Scott Podcast, it'll take 20% off. So, Okay, and um, the elk module is how much, Chris? Uh, twenty four bucks or twenty. It said essentially twenty five bucks. So with your discount, it's a twenty bucks for the three months, or the full annual subscription is fifty bucks. It'll be forty bucks for anybody that's listening for this. And and just so the listeners understand, I mean, this isn't like two or three videos. I mean, this is like thirty or forty videos, uh, and maybe more specifically, you know. Having elk demonstrate the mew, the lost mew, the alarm bark, the aggravated whine, the frustrated whine. I mean, all these different sounds and bulls chuckling, glunks, huffs, alarm barks, you know. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, you, in your humbleness, you weren't exactly spelling out. I mean, we're talking a lot, like hours and hours worth of resource here that you can learn. And so um, I just wanted to be clear on that because... You know, this elk module is phenomenal. And, you know, from the very first time I went on it years ago, I've loved it. And I appreciate you doing it. And uh, I appreciate you offering that discount to the listeners and appreciate having you on. Uh, they can also find you at uh, rowhuntingresources.com, correct? And on Facebook? Well, yeah. Any of whether it's our website, Facebook, just Row Hunting Resources. We've got a YouTube channel where I've got a pile of other videos on there, and that's just, again, Row Hunting Resources YouTube channel, uh, Instagram. Yeah, we, they, if you type in Row Hunting Resources in any of your, your most of your social media stuff or our website, it, it's going to come to us. So, Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're fortunate to have Chris Rowe of Row Hunting Resources again on the podcast, and I had so much great feedback from the podcast episode uh, that Chris and I did a while back that I thought I would have him on again. Uh, he brings a lot of expertise to the table, and I'm proud to have him on again. Chris, how you doing? Doing all right, my friend. How are you? Oh, doing just fine. We're getting closer and closer to elk season. Uh, every day that goes by is another one. We're getting closer, so I'm getting excited. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. 
That's awesome. Chris, I know you've um, just recently up, uh, uploaded a video to YouTube um, and basically talks a l about a topic we briefly talked about in the last episode about why it matters, meaning the actual sounds and calls you make, you believe that it does matter uh, you know, when you use those and what sounds you're making. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that video that you just uploaded on YouTube. Well, I... Like you said, from our last discussion, some people listened to it, and you know, I, I got a lot of feedback from it as well. There's two schools of thought, and in general, they are, you know, there's a there's a camp of folks that believe that it really does not matter what you're saying. So if I go out in the woods and, or in the hills or whatever, and I and I give a cow call, so let's just say I, I give a lost mew. People use the terminology lost mew. All right, so I give a lost mew. Well. Does it really matter if I know exactly what that is meaning or does it, or is it more important to just be, you know, really good with my calling and, and give quality sounds and use quality calls and, and just put a lot of feeling and emotion into your calling? All right. So there's the camp that says it doesn't really matter. You just want to sound good and you want to sound like you have a lot of emotion and you're, you know, really pleading in your calling. And I think. Before you go into the next one, I think I would fall into the category of I haven't thought about it enough to know why it matters or to think about why it matters. And you really opened the door on our last conversation. I've always felt like I have great sounds. But to be honest with you, a lot of times I don't even know what sound I'm making. I'm just making a good sound. There you go. I, I'm kind of in the middle because I am in, of a belief that it really does matter. And going through the elk module on row hunting resources uh, after our conversation, it really started, you know, making me want to know more and learn more about what actual sounds to make. Because I feel like I can make good sounds, I just need to know when to make them. Yeah, and 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 I think you nailed it with something you just you just mentioned in the fact that there are a lot of successful uh, elk hunters out there, and call whether you're a calling instructor or just at your caller or your elk hunter or whatever, or a guide or outfitter or whatever, there are some just phenomenally successful folks out there that that they don't know what, what it is that they're saying. They've never put any stock in it. They don't care. They just say, I sound good, and I'm successful. So that's really all that matters. Well, and, and again, this is a controversial topic. I mean, it, it really is. You can get some people that are just vehement about, no, it doesn't. You know, you're just talking voodoo. But it just, the reason why I, I dove into it with this this video is because when I sit and have a conversation with folks, and I provide some, well, whether it's biological background or information to it, or even if I just put it in context with you and I and, and how we are in our conversations and, and communication, like you said, it really opens people's eyes to going, well, wait a minute, no, maybe it does matter. Now, granted, I know that there's other people out there that talk about you know, vocalizations and communication and, and what certain things mean. And I even say right in the video, Listen, I know that there's other people out there that say that, that, that talk about this stuff. And quite honestly, I understand, you know, some folks look at it and say, oh, I don't agree with that. Well, I don't agree with a lot of what some of these other folks are talking about either. I understand that. But like we talked about in the last one, that's why I have the video 
of the elk doing what I'm talking about in the elk module. It's not me flapping my gums. It's the elk themselves doing it. You can see their body language. You can, you can hear them. You can see the outcome of that interaction. But for me, absolutely it matters. If you want to be more successful, yes, it absolutely matters. And from your background of being a wildlife biologist, I mean, you are an avid archery elk hunter, and you are an avid elk caller. You do lots of seminars all over all over the Southwest. But what I find interesting about the elk module is the fact that it seems that you bring it all the way back full circle to the biology aspect of here is a cow making an assembly mew. This is what it sounds like. And it's like, oh, you know, now I kind of understand. I hear that all the time. But in her cadence and in her tone, this is what she's inferring when a lot of people, including myself, just hear a cow call and go, that's a cow calling. Yeah. yeah. You, you are taking it a whole step and whole dynamic, whole different level of trying to understand the actual communications because within those communications, the tone and the sound of every cow is going to be different, but maybe the, the, the number of times she calls or that's what intrigues me. Structure. It's not, it's, it's structure. There's, it's not just, you know, you and I could sit there and you could say, you know, do it like this three times and I'm going to sound different than you, but we could both achieve the same results yes. because all cows sound different. Yes, yes, and, and that's it. The structure of the vocalization. You know, I talk about the long mule. Long you, you, you or, or excuse me, the, like, well, shoot. There's so many things you just said that just, that <laughs> my, my, my brain races. So, for instance, like the, uh, the lost mute. If you, if we talk about the lost mute, and, you know, you hold or you emphasize that high note and you come off on the low note, you know, very quickly. It does not matter if you're, you're very, very super, super high or you're, you're a medium pitch or you're, you know, kind of a lower pitch. If you're holding the higher note and then falling, that structure of that vocalization is going to relay a certain meaning. Or if we talk about the assembly mute, which is a, the mere opposite of that, you know, you're talking very, very short on the high note that you drag out that low note, all right? That structure of the vocalization, it doesn't matter if I'm using a mouth, well, mouth diaphragm doesn't really lend itself to a, a assembly mute, but if I'm using, say, an open read style call, I can do it on a single read. I can do it on a double read. I can do it with a tone converter. I can do it muffled in my hand. It doesn't matter what it ultimately sounds like is from a from a standpoint of a sound quality or pitch or anything like that. But if the structure is the same, then that vocalization is going to mean the same. And what you what really got my brain racing is you talk about bringing it full circle. And I think. And I talk about that in this YouTube video. If, if folks want to check it out, it's they can either go to our YouTube channel, and it'll be right there at the top, and that's just Row Hunting Resources uh, in the YouTube channel. But it's mastering your elk calling. doesn't really matter if you know what you're saying. And so in there I talk about that exact fact of bringing it full circle. And, and for me what that means is there are a lot of folks that either – take all of their learning or base all of their conclusions 
on what they're hearing and what they see with elk, all from essentially September. They go elk hunting, they, in, they engage elk, they hear things, they see things, and that's how they, they, they make their, their conclusion. Well, I, in, a, in a bunch of my different videos, I talk about you know correlation is not necessarily causation. Just because you see something happen or hear something happen at, at a certain time does not mean two things are related. So, but it's very easy, I think, to hear it and see a reaction and go, that's what caused this. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I talk about that in depth in, um, I've got a, that, well, you've watched it, the, the series, Understanding Bull Vocalizations and Communications, uh, Communication, when I talk about the glunk. The glunk, yeah. I, the glunk, I think, is probably the most misunderstood vocalization that a bull elk can do and it really was not until Kelly and I said and Kelly's the one that really I think she discovered it really teased it out we sat there we've got I don't know how many hours of, of video and you just bulls glunk 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 you know glunking and it wasn't until she was going through them she was like wait a minute I think it means this and, and we started looking at it and she, I'm like what yeah, and so we start going back through and pulling all of our video and trying to, and, and we talk about, you know, you can never prove a behavioral theory or a vocalization theory to be correct. The only thing that you can do is disprove it, all right? And it, I talk about that in depth on some of the videos. But regardless, we went back through and tried to disprove all the other things that we had ever heard or believed about a glunk, and we started just knocking them out of the water. We're like, nope, that's not it. Nope, that's not it. Nope, that's not it. Because there were so many inconsistencies. But when it all boiled down to it, we realized, wait a minute, no, it's very, very simple. But it still, it still relates to all these other things, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, glunk people say, oh, it attracts cows. Oh, it's for keeping cows. Oh, it's for, you know, asserting dominance. Oh, it's for imprinting on cows. It's a, no, no, no. It means stay. It means stay. And I, and we can, we can sit there and I can show you that repeatedly and it works every single time. And so, yes, what you're saying is when you go out in, in the field and you see, I, I make a call, a bull responds and he runs me over. Well, it's easy to say, oh, okay, well, that call must mean this, and, and that's what he wanted. The other, I mean, it, it's kind of like fishing, and, and you, you throw a cast out with one fly, and you get a fish, you're like, okay, that's what they want. Well, maybe that's what just that one there wanted. There you go. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what every fish wants. There you go. And so what when you said full circle, what it means to me is there are so many variables in September. When, when you throw testosterone and raging estrogen in the cows, going crazy with the, those reproductive hormones going on, that throws such a wild card in the mix. I mean, you've got, you know, the differences in the cows, you've got difference in the bulls, you have sex ratio, age class, hunter pressure, environmental factors. There's so many variables that you cannot control or even remotely account for. What I did is I said, okay, fine, I'm going to eliminate all that. Skip September. I'm gonna I'm gonna ignore end of August. I'm going to ignore September, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ignore October. What do elk do in December? What do they do in January? What do they do in March, June, July? What are they doing the entire rest of the year? And can we tease out what's going on then? There's at those times of year you don't have hunting pressure. 
that the elk are a lot more relaxed. You have uh, there's no you know reproductive hormones going you know that are going to throw anything. When you go kind of to that off season, if you will, and start really spending time teasing out with video and audio, just start teasing out vocalizations and communication, then you start to see that, wait a minute, there are set vocalizations that mean very, very specific things that always, always, always have the exact same uh, expectation uh, result, whether it elicits a response or whether it elicits an action from another animal, they are consistent. Well, if they're consistent in November, as they are in January, as they are in July, then why wouldn't they be consistent in September? And now you can go from the point of, I don't really, you know, I throw something out there in this case, and a bull runs me over, I go to the next ridge, I do the exact same call, and not only do I get ignored, the elk just turn around and leave and walk away. So that's why it matters. To, well, I yeah. I mean, and I'll even go beyond <laughs> that from a standpoint, okay, well, maybe we don't like what, you know, you make a vocalization. They didn't like what they heard, you know, and I talk about, you know, they didn't like what you were selling. I'll give an example of a guy in a, in a produce department of a grocery store. You know, if, if somebody jumps up on their produce stand and starts yelling pencils and automobiles and, and boot laces and winter jackets, you know, yeah, it it makes sense that we all understand that those words don't go together and and they don't make sense. But more importantly, does it change our behavior? And so, in some cases, we go out into the field, and and this is, I think, really especially true when we're dealing with over-the-counter units on heavily hunted public ground where there's a lot of people calling, and the elk are generally a little bit more wary anyway. And you've got a, you know, what we talked about before, where you got those bull, you know, say down in your area, where you got so many stinking bulls that, I mean, heck, you're almost tripping over bulls in some cases. Whereas in some of the areas in, in, you know, whether it's Idaho, Colorado, New Mexico, wherever, Wyoming, where you've got some of these other units where you might have ten bulls per hundred cows or fifteen bulls per hundred cows, you don't have that many bulls out there. So when you're out there uh, and you start calling. Yes, we're trying to get them to do what we want them to do with our vocalization. We want to be attractive. We want to get them to come in. But if we vocalize with something and they just don't like what we're saying, well, if they don't like what we're saying simply because they're not interested in it. So, for instance, if if I gave them a vocalization and that vocalization was dead-on accurate within the context of, of where I was calling from and the context of what I was saying to that animal... And that animal is like, no, I'm not interested in, in coming over to you. Well, that's fine. But if it all makes sense, then the animal just goes back to doing whatever it is he's doing. And he just continues on his way. He does not change his behavior. And I can back out. I can regroup. I can come back in and work him that afternoon. If that doesn't work, I can back out. I can come back. I can work him the next morning. And I can figure out what strategy is needed to get that animal to work but I don't change his behavior. Whereas some of us go out there and we just start throwing stuff out there and hoping to see kind of what sticks. Well, if the animal does not like what we're selling, that's fine. But if we stand out too badly, or if we call in such a manner to where they're like, wait a minute, that's not right, you can actually not only have that animal not respond favorably to your calling, but in, in fact, 
turn and leave or just absolutely modify their behavior. So now it didn't work. Uh, you know, my calling strategy didn't work on this animal, you know, this morning. So I, I back out and I leave and I come back that evening and I hope to work that animal again. And nope, he's gone. He's, he's up and over the ridge and he left. Now I've got to go find another elk. Right. So, yeah. So you've totally blown, you've blown your opportunity. Yeah. And not even have the opportunity to go back and, and re-engage with him. You've, you've screwed the pooch in essence and he's gone. Exactly. And, and it, you know, obviously, and I, I kind of just, you know, you know this. Um, you know, this day and age, the, the, the fitness, the, the hunter athlete and the, the super fitness, uh, minded athlete or hunter, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, having your fitness to be the, the ultimate level. So that way you can go back farther and, and hunt harder and hunt longer and, and cover more ground. And well, okay, that's, and, and quite honestly, I think a lot of that is a symptom of the fact that, you know, people are not capitalizing on the animals as they run into them so they have to you know run this ridge to that ridge to that ridge to that ridge always looking for the next elk trying to find another elk that's willing to play their game so instead of more efficiently being able to communicate and work the different animals the mindset is the better shape that i'm in the more country that i can cover which means I don't have to be near as efficient and effective with my calling and with my setups, and I'm just going to run them down. I'm going to I'm going to run them down, and I'm going to find I'm going to at some point stumble into an elk that is willing to work and do what I want. You know, willing to come to my call. Yes, I, I truly believe that. I, and so some it's, people it's have different, said it, and some people have actually said it. And, and so it's different than someone saying I'm going to live and die by the bugle. This is more of a, I, I, I'm going to just not learn why I need to improve my hunting skill of communicating with the animals and knowing behaviorally what they're doing. I'm going to take that weakness and try and be as in good a shape as I can to just try and run into as many elk as I can and one of them's going to end up biting. Yes, and, and, I know, and Jay, I'm telling you right now, I know darn well that what we're talking about right now in our belief structure, or my, let's just, I'm not even going to throw it on you. I'm going to just, I'll own it. I'll, I'll, I'll own it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I will own it because this is truly what I believe. I see it all the time. And I talk to so many people that, yes, they, you know, they don't, their, their toolbox, if you will, of, of knowledge and, and, uh, you know, skill set and, and what they can do with their calls is, is limited. And so literally they, that is what they are left with is I, you know, and I, I do. I, in the video, I give an example. I'm like, okay, we go into this basin. We're in this long valley. There are 10 elk in this valley. We might not know that to start out, but the fact remains is, yes, there are 10 elk in this valley. Some of us go out there and we just call and we hope that something sticks. And what we're hoping to do is run that valley at some point and hope that we hope, hope that we find the one bull in the valley that's willing to play our game. Whereas, if I, uh, from, from my belief set and what I talk about is, I want to go into that same valley and be able to work every single one of those bulls. If I come to that first bull and I find out, oh, he has cows, so I have to 
you know, work him a certain way. Well, now I can. If I go to the next bull and find out, oh, he's off on his own, and he's a, a mature bull, okay, I can work him. I go to the next bull. Oh, it's a younger bull off on his own. He just got ran out from, you know, this other group. He's really call shy. He's a little nervous. Well, that's fine. I know how to work him. I can go into that valley and I can work all 10 bulls without having to run that whole stinking system hoping to find that one animal. Because the, the thing that always... The one common denominator, I guess, it, people would still would not still be going to elk calling seminars if people were having extreme success with elk. You know with what they're getting from elk calling seminars. People are fine are going out in the field each year. They're trying new stuff. They're they're doing whatever they can do, but they're not getting success with it. And so, when especially if you're a beginning hunter. If you're not getting success, and, it, and you've got to, I, I would have to think that you would agree with this, especially from a fishing standpoint. If you are not seeing success from what you are doing, your confidence level just starts to nosedive. And if you are out in the field, you know, you just hiked in four miles with a heavy backpack to get into where you think the elk should be. You're tired, you're sore now, you're into camp, you start hunting. And after a couple days, you're either not finding the elk or the elk just aren't working or they're not doing what you want them to do. Your confidence level just starts hitting the, just taking a nosedive to where it's going to be harder for you to get up in the morning and get out of that sleeping bag. It's going to be harder for you to stay out all day if you need to. It's going to be harder to convince yourself, no, I need to stay out here until dark and, you know, maybe hike back to camp in the pitch black. You know, it, it starts to wear on your psychological, uh, wherewithal, if you will. And so, no, if, if you take the next step to learn, in, in my opinion, say, I, I want to know behavior. I want to know what these vocalizations mean, and I want to know how I'm supposed to use how the elk use them, not how I'm supposed to use them, how the elk use them, then it, right from the get-go you have more confidence because I've already seen an elk, I've seen six videos of elk doing this vocalization, and I've seen six results of that vocalization. The, I know for a fact the elk say this, and I know for a fact this is what they perceive, and this is what they are expecting. So now, not only am I more confident, the likelihood of you actually having a favorable interaction when you do call goes through the roof to where now your confidence is a lot better, and your effectiveness and your efficiency goes up a lot better as well. I've got a couple comments to talk about what you're just saying, and one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because of the exact reason you're talking about. I am a student of the game uh, in fishing, in golf, in hunting, in, you know, you break hunting down, turkey hunting, elk hunting, deer hunting, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I played golf, played college golf, played in high school. Uh, was a student of the game of golf. Uh, I've loved fishing ever since I was a little kid. I am a student of the game. A, a couple comments I would have is I, it, I can't understand l logic of some people that will spend you know a hundred dollars a month on supplements and new gym memberships and you know all the different things. While they are those are great things. They totally neglect and disregard trying to improve one of the main fundamental hunting skills, which is being able to learn and 
uh, a behavior of the animal you're hunting and be able to communicate with that animal. Okay, so I started this podcast because I am a student of every game that I play. I want to know everything that I possibly can. I am an analytical person, but I believe that the more that I can learn, the better off I will be. I am the first one to ask a guide, a fly fishing guide in a boat next to me when we're sitting at the takeout, how was your day? How'd you do? I'm trying to learn. I'm not trying to to pick their brain and, and be a snob. And I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to say, man, I, I'll just say, I flat between 10 and 2. I struggled. I, I couldn't figure out what those fish are doing. Some guy says, oh, they're on, you know, um, BWO emergers or they're doing this. And I'm like, ah, I didn't. Yeah. So the reason I started this podcast is I figured that with my analytical mind uh, and my inquisitive mind and wanting to be a student of the game that I could have great guests on like yourself and I could have the conversation to learn myself but also make it in an engaging, entertaining way, informational way that people could get something out of it. Um, And, you know, that's where... You know, I've elk hunted for a long time, and I would say I I am as confident in my elk hunting and elk calling ability as probably anybody else out there, and and the results that I've gotten over the years have been, you know, great and 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 very good. But guess what? I learn every day, and that's why when I found Row Hunting Resources Elk Module, it like opened up a whole new world because. I, I had spent so much time, you know, I, I think this year will be 20, 20 years, uh, taking the entire month of September off and, and, and listening to elk and videoing elk. And, but what I, the older I get, the more I understand, the less I know. Yeah. Meaning, yeah. I, I have a lot to learn and I feel like I'm as a proficient elk guide and elk hunter is probably, you know, anyone out there. But one thing that I never really understand is there's a lot of guides and there's a lot of hunters out there that hunt every year and they don't know how to call. They don't know how to call well and they don't even try. Yeah. It, and yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Keep and, going. I, I'm with and, keep. and so, you know, from, you know, talking about the fitness, I, I, I've gotten several emails because in these podcast episodes, I guess I have been critical of those that are, uh, you know, into extreme fitness. One of the things I'd like to say is it's not that I'm against extreme fitness. It's that I'm against why not spending some of that time learning how to call and communicate with the animals that you're hunting. And I'm not picking on any one particular person. I've just had enough feedback from people that they just don't get it. Well, and just because you can run six ridges over does not mean you can kill an elk. Now, if you can communicate very well and know what the animal's behavior and what to say at the right time and run six ridges over and, you know, do 10,000 vertical feet in a morning, then you're that much better. Well, but it, it seems they totally disregard one and, and, and go full steam in the other and you go, well, have you practiced your elk calling? Or have you learned what those elk are saying? You know, you spend, you use the J. Scott, you know, JSO podcast promo code or J. Scott Outdoors, whatever the promo code is with Real Hunting Resources, you get the elk module for 20 bucks. Yeah, yeah. 
Meanwhile, they'll go spend hundreds on because, you know a new a new road bike and a new all this stuff to get in shape, but they won't spend twenty bucks. And I'm not saying they don't because you have a lot of members, but you know the logic. I just don't understand. Because it. in Jay, I don't want to shut you down, but I mean the, the reason being, I think, is because two two things. Number one, um, if you spend money, you just bought something tangible. I I can hold it. I, I you know I I have a new uh, I've gotten you know I've got new camo I've got new clothes I've got a new bow I've got you know whatever I I've got something new it's something tangible it's something that I've done that I can show a my that that I have done different from last year and the fitness thing I think is the, is very similar in the fact that if I'm taking supplements and I'm running and biking hiking and everything else that yes I can I tangibly can feel I'm better I I can tangibly measure the fact that I can hike farther now and I can run better and I feel better so now I can cover more ground. That is a tangible, real thing that you can grasp or at least wrap your head around. The problem is knowledge, not so much. You don't know. You can you can spend all the time in, you, in the world you want trying to gain knowledge, but you do not know if you have that knowledge until you test it. And so it is un, it's intangible until the moment of truth. And so if you don't have the confidence, everything up to you up to that point has has deteriorated your confidence in calling or your confidence in ability of working animals, you don't have the confidence to actually put the material in play. A couple great examples. One was an elk mod member. He he subscribed. He had seen one of my seminars. He I think it was a seminar guy. He subscribed. Uh, in the in the elk mod, I talk about, you know, well, we talked about the doorway, the doorway principle, all right? And I talked about the see you first, hear you second, smell you third. Well, he went out in the field, learned all that stuff, but in the back of his mind, he was like, mm, I don't know. And so he did everything absolutely perfect, but then he was like, I second-guessed myself, and I stuck a decoy out. And he stuck the decoy out, but he... Again, it wasn't by any, I mean, he just, it was just kind of a last minute, I'll just throw it here and, and see if that helps. Well, the elk came right around, the elk did exactly what I said it was going to do, what the behavior said it was going to do, everything was right smack dab down the line until that bull stepped around and saw that decoy and the bull stopped and stared at the decoy, just like we talk about. And the bull turned and never gave the guy a shot, only because the bull stopped when he saw the decoy. And, he, and the guy wrote, he's like, you know what? Ditch the decoy, work the setup. Now, I'm not ditching, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing decoys. I use them and I still have them and, we, and I talk about that. However, in the wrong situation, it can be a detriment. In this case, the point I'm making is he, he learned all the information, but he doubted. He just, he was like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And so he just kind of hedged his bets. And I understand why people doubt because, again, there are other folks out there talking about stuff. And even you and I, logically, we, we listen to some of these other folks and we're like, eh, I don't know, that doesn't make any sense. Well, again, like we talk about, that's why I put the elk in, you know, I'm, I'm videoing elk doing it, so you're not listening to me. But I'm telling you, what you're saying is don't take my yes. word for it. Take the elk's word yes, for it. Yes, exactly. And, and what you said there with the, with the fitness, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. I, 
I, I'll tell you right now, I am not in shape. I, I'm not near in shape that I need to be. So I, I'm not going to criticize those guys that are, are in shape because I remember when I was in shape, it made my hunt a heck of a lot more enjoyable. However, not only is it, I mean, yes, if you can run three ridges and find an elk that's playing your game, that's fine. But another thing that we talk about, or I've talked about before, is the fact that my experience and where my, I guess the genesis, if you will, the, the core fundamental start of all of my philosophy came from the fact that I am a solo hunter. I have to call the elk myself to me to kill. And then more importantly, I hunt on some very, very, or have hunted on some very, very tough public ground that was heavily, heavily hunted. And literally, I was in college at the time, and I would have, I would leave Friday night, I would get in camp at 11 o'clock at night, or at the trailhead 11 o'clock at night, hike in at about 2, 3 in the morning, and then I would have Saturday to hunt and Sunday morning. That's it. And so I had to figure out how to be a lot more effective and a lot more efficient. And what I see today is people not focusing on efficiency, but rather focusing on their physical abilities. Not only are they just running past a lot of elk, but unfortunately some of these guys, because they just want to run and gun and they want to find an elk that will play their game, they're just burning through habitat, negatively impacting the elk along the way and so for guys like me got you know new hunters people out there with kids okay they cannot go five ridges over they have this ridge but now you just burn through this ridge and you created such a disturbance that now you just made it tough or even tougher for everybody else that's down there now granted i understand people are like well i don't care i'm gonna get my elk and I, that's 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 my business well that's fine but like we talked about last episode i would much rather deal with 10 guys in the field in, in the same valley that know what they're doing than one or two guys that don't because the, right. the impact is that much greater. And I've got to believe for you with a, as being a guide, when you have some of these people that drew a, a, a tag that took them 20 years to draw, I mean, my gosh, I mean, the impact there has got to be, the stress level has got to be huge. Because, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the things, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I only do 14 day hunts, so our archery season in Arizona is 14 days, and the only, the reason that I only do 14 day hunts is I recognize that one, the tags are hard to come by and they've waited a long time to draw that tag, and two, that they need to make the most of their time and they don't need to be limited by a seven-day hunt. In my opinion, on limited draw hunts, guys that book a seven-day hunt are making a very big mistake because in Arizona, speaking specifically, you are going to get some hunts that are interrupted by people. You're going to get some hunts that are interrupted by lightning storm or by whatever kind of, you know, downpour rain or what happened, you know, or... Uh, you, you know, something happens and your truck breaks down, or there's going to be outside influences that are going to ruin some sessions of your hunt. So I think that's why it's important to do 14-day hunts and to try and reduce the stress level, knowing that, you know, with that amount of time, you have basically, I call them 28 sessions, a morning and an evening, because I don't hunt much during the day unless it's really peak rut. Um, and... 
it, it just gives them a little bit of sense of, okay, we can get this done. And, you know, we try and be efficient with all of our setups, with all of our mornings and our evenings. Um, but, yeah, I mean, efficiency, being a student of the game like I am and, and learning every single time I go out and learning from, you know, guys like you and, 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 and others, I, you know, I can pick something up and become more efficient by learning. And I think um, I'm hoping that the younger generation that is getting into the sport with all of the influences that we have to be, you know, macho and fit, half of that, I think, is a young man's mentality to, you know, be the fittest guy out there. And that is fantastic. And I would say when I was 22 years old, I might have been in the same category. As I get older, I realize that every year that I get older, I'm going to have to work harder, one, to be in shape. But number two, I realize that being more effective and efficient is is paramount. It, it's it's more important than being able to go 36 miles in one day. Being able to work that specific elk and be efficient with that elk, the older I get is more important to me. Yeah. I, you know, and, and I'm, I'm kind of sitting here chuckling to myself. I, for me, I don't want people to think that I'm some just grumpy old man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> me too. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not. It's just, I, it's not, by all means, it's not. I just, I've talked to so many, so many hunters, and, you know, it's, it's not that we're talking about these huge revelatory, you know, these ooh, earth shattering things. It's sometimes it's just one little thing that somebody didn't think about and say, you know, again, a doorway principle or the see you first principle or, or whether it's, you know, the meaning of, of a certain vocalization or whatnot. It just, people are like, oh, it's the light bulb that goes off. You know, I, one of your one of your listeners signed up from the last um, podcast, and I'm just gonna I'm not gonna give his name. Not gonna I'll just read what he said. And he goes, I spent and it's an email, and I, I spend hunting or I spend a lot of time hunting and guiding elk hunters in Arizona. I believe you have some of the best content on the web. It's really cool, and I wish I would have found this about 15 years ago. And that is probably the most common statement I hear. From well, and that's the revolution that I found, uh, the, the, the epiphany of, you know, oh my gosh, yeah. nobody else is explaining this in this type of fashion, and so I can agree with his sentiment. I, I totally agree with that email. I mean, that's the way I felt when I found it. Whether or not you are a student of, you know, a lover of the game or a student of the game, like you said, and I, I kind of agree with that. I, I'm the same way. Whether you're that type of person or whether you're just starting out or whether you're just somebody that just is not happy with the level of, of consistency that they're getting, you know, if you spend a little time working on your efficiency in what, you, what you're doing, it is going to blow the doors wide open on your success level and your confidence level and your enjoyment out in the field and quite honestly... Well, it, I mean, that just just ended that. I mean, it just the, the people when when you sit there and you go, I heard a bull, I can go in and I can call him and call him in. I mean, I it's it's just it's very it's very fun for me to listen to folks that come back and they go, oh my gosh, you know, there was a bull. I did this, this, this. I walked in, I gave him that targeted strategy, and boom, put him in my lap. 
and it wasn't a bowl that I wanted, so I went to the next bowl. And this is public ground, and then, oh, I went to the next bowl, and oh, it was a great six by boom, we killed that one, and then my buddy killed that one, and oh my gosh, then we had to figure out how to get them out, and about, you know, that's the type of enjoyment that I, you know, I, I really do. I really enjoy hearing that from folks. So I don't, I don't want people thinking I'm just a grumpy old man that, you know, I, it just, I, I enjoy people being successful and I think that they can be successful fairly easily if they just tweak a couple of little things that they think or how they, or what they know and how they implement some of that knowledge. Yeah. And I'm, I am absolutely right there with you and, and, you know, I have some phenomenal support and, and the listeners are, you know, they support the podcast and support what I'm doing unbelievably. Um, and, and you know, there's a few probably out there that are thinking I'm going to send Jay an email as soon as this is over and tell him, you know, about, you know, you need to be in fit. And I am not arguing that yeah. you don't need to be fit. That So don't, please I understand what Chris and I are both saying is, we're just talking about being more of a student of the game and being more efficient and being able to, to understand animal behavior and to be able to communicate with the animals. In my mind, being older than I was 20 years ago, I understand, in my opinion, that is more important now. And I wish 20 years ago I would have, you know, been more efficient. Well, I tell you, I tell you what, we could, we could just use this. We've all seen... Whether it's a Facebook meme or we've heard people talk about, you know, you'll you'll see some guy with a big upper body, you know, upper body, big arms, big chest, and these skinny little chicken legs, and it says, you know, you know, never forget leg day, you know, never skip leg day, you yeah. know. Well, okay, I tell you what, if you, that's fine, be fitness, do do that, absolutely be fit. However, don't forget brain day, you know, don't forget to work that muscle or that gray matter as well. Don't forget to work the brain because that is going to be, you know, and we joked about it, the fact that, you know, that's fine. You can get to the, the top of the mountain in record time. You stand on the top of the ridge and then it's a, now what? Okay, yeah. yeah. You got there. That's fine. Now what? All right. So don't see brain day. Meanwhile, the old guy comes saunering up and finally gets up there and makes three calls and the elk's standing at 10 yards and he whacks them and it's like, oh, okay, now I get it. Or, or more, Worse yet, the guy kills it at quarter mile from the trailhead, and he's already back in his truck. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's all great stuff. And t to be quite honest with you, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the moon phase. I originally we were going to talk about moon phase and its effect on the rut. And um, uh, I I am of the opinion that uh, the moon phase, from a behavioral standpoint, as it affects the rut, what I can tell you is what I've noticed in full moon situations, it seems as though the elk rut like crazy at night when we're not obviously allowed to hunt them. They go to their beds early. They head to the thick country early. And uh, they are less vocal and such during the day because they've been partying all night. I notice I'm looking at the 2015 uh, September uh, map here, and it looks like the full moon is on the uh, 28th of September, and it looks like the new moon is on the 14th. Well, the way that that affects the Arizona archery elk hunt, most hunts in Arizona start on September 11th on a Friday, and they go till 
uh, September 24th, and then the early rifle hunt is the 25th, then through the 2nd, uh, or excuse me, October 1st, a Thursday, so that full moon is going to fall right during most of the early rifle hunts in Arizona. Um, I'm curious from a wildlife biology standpoint what you feel uh, the full moon has to do with the rut. All right, well, before I dive into that, again, I'm laughing because I think after this, we just might as well dive into which is the best broadhead to use because <laughs> why, why don't we just cover the most controversial there you go. Let, topic? Let's, let's just stack all the controversial discussions in one. Yeah, that is funny. Well, all right, I'm going to, before I give you my opinion, I want you to go back to what you just said. Right, now, I may or may not agree with anything that you or what you just said here, but you said, if I heard you correctly, that in paraphrasing, that when you see the full moon, that they're rutting like crazy. Correct. And then you went down the list of what you see to as a, as that, that's correlated with it. You know, they're they're bugling at night, they're going to the bed early, they're you know, they're not as vocal during the day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then, and conversely, during, let's say, mid-September when it's dark, I see them bugling less at night and bugling much more during the day and much more active during the day. So in huntable hours, I prefer to hunt in darker moons if the rut has already started. Okay. Well, and that, and that right there, I think is the is the the crux of the controversy because you hear people talking all the time about moon phase and the rut, but then they and, and when they say rut, there's there people are talking about in my opinion talk about apples and oranges. Some people are talking about the rut and they're actually talking about estrus cycling, but then other people are talking about quote unquote the rut and what they're talking about is the observed behavior and activity of the elk that they're seeing out there. And again, this is where we go back to correlation is not necessarily causation. They link the two and say, well, because I hear a lot of bugling, because I see a lot of activity and I see a behavior change, that must mean, therefore, then, that the, the, the estrus cycling is, is, has changed. If it changed with the full moon, then it must have changed with the estrus cycling. Therefore, the full moon affects the estrus cycling. And there is zero scientific data to suggest that. Now, I'll just throw, I'll just throw that out there because there's, there's people that have, I mean, I'm looking at the, wait, hold up. I'm, I'm, I'm holding it in my hand. I've, I've got it. It's, here's the book. It's the book in my hand written by Bernie Taylor. And I don't mind giving this book out because I think it's bunk. But it's it's called Biological Time. And in, in this book was written uh, basically showing all these correlations with, you know, moon phase and serotonin levels and melatonin levels and hormone changes, blah, 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 and enzyme secretions and such from fish and from, I mean, all sorts of stuff. The problem is, as far as I know, and I just recently looked up some of this stuff and I haven't seen any change, and as far as I know, no one has ever been able to, to show any either medical or, or concrete biological, physiological uh, effect of moon phase 
on reproductive cycling of asterisks. Now, however, I can show you, and I've got that, you know, you saw it, that entire video series on rethinking the rut. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole pile of factors that affect estrus cycling in cows. None of it has to do with moon phase. And so I will agree with you on everything that you said about what you've seen around a full moon period, or what I, cla I, I classify it as a bright moon period, because you know that you get that last half as the... As the Basically those seven days. There you go. Because, yeah. you know, the three or four days before a full moon, it's, it's stinking bright, and then three or four days after a, a full moon is stinking bright. So, I mean, it's a bright moon phase. Right. So... Yeah, I I will agree with most of what you said as far as the what I observe. Now, I will also say, however, that during a bright moon phase, sometimes that ten o'clock to two o'clock time period in the middle of the day is yeah. absolutely awesome because those elk, yes, they've they've gone, they you know they're out all night, they're feeding all night, they've got full bellies. Now, when it comes, you know, the, you know, the morning starts creeping in, the daylight starts, they don't have to be out there as long. And so they go to bed. They typically, what I have observed as well, is that they go to bed early. Well, their stomach, them processing and going through their rumen contents does not change with the moon cycling. So it takes them four to five hours to go through that, the, you know, a full gut. So if they go to bed early, they get hungry early, and which usually means at about 10, 11, 12, 1, 2 o'clock, somewhere in there, they start getting restless, and so they start getting up, and if they feel safe and, and comfortable, and, and, well, if they feel safe, especially, you know, what you're talking about down in your area, I mean, you've got so many, you know, bulls down there that you'll get bulls in the middle of the day, they start getting restless, and they'll, they'll come to a call, absolutely. So, I will agree that I, I think the manifestation of behavior changes can happen with a with a full moon, but no, I do not believe anything really really happens with estrus cycling. I hunt coos whitetail a lot, and I can tell you that, and I'll bring this full circle. But um, during a full moon, during those bright seven days. Even though we get out there before light and we're up on our point before it gets light, the activity level in a, in those seven bright days and especially the two or three around really full type of moon, bright moon, um, you very rarely see any activity for the first three hours and the last three hours of the day. If, if, if I just had to choose, you know, a four hour period to go glass coos whitetail, during a full moon phase, I would literally show up about 10 o'clock and glass from 10 to 2. So it makes total sense that the elk are up all night, just like the coos deer, rutting around, feeding, doing their thing, because they can see, and they go to bed early, and four or five hours later, you know, during the day, they decide, okay, I've laid down, now I'm going to get up, I'm going to feed a little bit, and that's that that makes total sense. And, and um, obviously, hunting middle of the day, you just got to be careful of the wind. You know, I mean, absolutely. the wind's swirling around. Now, I will say that I believe, 
There are there is some even in the literature, in scientific literature, there is anecdotal evidence and some weak evidence to suggest that increased moonlight can increase the light that penetrates the eye, and it, it can. I won't say it can. There's again, it, there's anecdotal <laughs> evidence that suggests that it might affect, say, serotonin levels or melatonin levels, and it might affect the. I don't know how to say it. Maybe the excitability. What? How I've how I've expressed it in the past is. You can see a heightened level of activity around whatever cycle that they are in. So, yes, you know, obviously you look at a bright moon phase at night. Well, now it's nighttime. They're, they feel extremely safe. All right. At night, they feel extremely safe because they have better eyesight than most. Pre- and realistically for us, you know, the guys that are listening to this, guys and gals listening to us, you know, in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, that have wolves and grizzlies, skip this section. But most of us, we don't have places where elk really have to deal with predators that bad. Yeah, we've got mountain lions. Yeah, we've got black bears. Yeah, we've got coyotes. But eh, okay. So the number one predator for elk, especially in the fall, is going to be humans, period. And when we're dealing with, with, with fall hunting season, you know that there's a lot of human scent floating around in the air, and it puts them on edge. Well, at night, you know, typically the thermals are different. The, you know, most people leave the field, so there's a lot less scent floating around. They feel a heck of a lot more safe to be out and about. So, yes, they're going to be more apt to be out all night in a bright moon phase, but there's some evidence that suggests that maybe there is a little bit of a hormone or, or an enzyme or whatever secretion in the brain that can excite that behavior. And so if they were going to be bugling anyway, well, in a bright moon phase, maybe they're going to be more aggressive in their bugling or more intense in their bugling or more frequent in their bugling. If they're going to be moving from their pre-rut area to the rutting area, doing that pre-rut move, well, maybe rather than you know a little bit of, of movement activity during this time period, if it occurs during under a during if that time period that they behaviorally naturally want to do it based on photo period, if that time period happens just so happens to fall under a bright moon phase, well, you can see increased movement or further movement or more excited movement or whatever. So there are folks that say, and I kind of believe this, that under a bright moon phase, you can see heightened activity. What surrounding whatever behavioral cycle that they happen to be in. Makes sense? Well, and I, yeah, I mean, and I also see, you know, during bright moon days, uh, or excuse me, bright moon nights is obviously in Arizona, speaking, you know, specifically Arizona, um, congregation areas, it just seems in full moons, you know, they congregate more, they get together more. That's probably due to the more movement which means they, they run around more, they're chasing each other, they're, you know, trying to breed, they're trying to carry on, which probably is the reason why they're going to bed early. You know, it, it, it all has a chain reaction. Um, I would ask you, in, from, from everything you just said, tactically, are there things that you would do differently, uh, archery elk hunting, 
in a bright moon phase rather than a dark moon phase. And, I mean, ob the obvious one I can think of is making sure you're out there uh, at those prime times when they're going to be most active and recognize what they may or may not be doing because of being out all night partying with their buddies. Yep, absolutely. Well, the, the number one thing, well, I guess there's not a number one thing. Let me just list them. Number one, I will spend time at night. I mean, out at night listening. And just where where are where do they you know? And I will stay out all night long. I happen to to work best at night anyway. I'm kind of a night owl anyway, so it doesn't really bother me. But while everybody else is heading back to camp and, and snuggling in their sleeping bags, I'm up there on the ridge going, okay, who sounds off first and where? Where do they sound off? Okay, and then who else? Then who else? Now where are they going? Where are they moving? How are they traveling? Okay, so I know that that's where they were bedded. Now that's where they're feeding. Okay, I know where they're traveling. So I will stay out at night and listen and, and really figure out what movement is, is going on out there because then the flip side of that is the next morning, and sometimes I'll just make my way over to these spots at night. Just in the pitch black, I'll walk right around the elk. Make sure my wind is not blowing down into them, but I will walk right around the elk, and I will literally go to where they kicked off that night and get in there first because I know that in the morning – where most of us, where most folks are, are getting out of their sleeping bag and they're, you know, they're walking down the trail or they're walking over the ridge and they, and they go, okay, now where do I need to start? Well, at that time, if you've got a little sliver of turquoise or pink in the horizon, you're already behind them. And so they're already headed to their bedding area or they're right smack dab in their bedding area. What I will do at that time, typically the wind currents are going to still be consistent and favorable. I'll use that night. And I'll work my way over there, and I'll just get into those areas where they're headed, those bedding areas, way earlier than they do. And I might, I mean, literally where, you know, on a north, quote-unquote, a dark moon phase, um, the elk are still out in their meadow feeding, and they've got to walk a half mile to their bedding area. Well, during a bright moon phase, they're already at their bedding area. So rather than me spending my time at that, that feeding area in that meadow, I'm going to already be in their bedding area. And then the other... The other thing, too, is I just watch that wind all morning long, and if I can, if, the, if for some reason the wind is consistent, if I can hunt midday, I absolutely hunt midday. And then the last thing is I really do pay attention, uh, and you'll, you should figure it out pretty quick, and it can change before, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with a rising moon versus a setting moon, you know, a rising moon, it is brighter during sunset, or excuse me, it is brighter after sunset all night long than a setting moon because as the as the moon starts to set and it goes past uh, its full, that means that moon sets earlier too. So depending on where that moon is, you might see in some areas. Well, the mornings are epic, but the evenings absolutely are horrid. They, there's just nothing going on. Well, if that's the case then I will just sh shift my hunting activity to capitalize on when they're moving, where they're moving, and if I need to sleep and catch up on sleep, I'll just do it when they're not active. Yeah, that's a great point. And one thing I will say, too, that, that uh, Dar and I have done quite a bit is, you know, when there's quite a bit of moon and it's bright at night with the good binoculars, you know, we use Swarovski binoculars, but, you know, any of the European, the good binoculars... 
a lot of times you can get the wind right and move into those areas where the elk are at night with the moon and be looking and, I mean, you can find some of the biggest bulls at night uh, just by using the moonlight and using good binoculars. I mean, at 150 yards, uh, you can tell exactly how big a bull is. So I would encourage people to, um, you know, the last thing you want to do is bump elk and get in there and stir them up and cause a bunch of human interference. But if you can get into those on the edges of those open areas and listen to those different bulls bugling and say, okay, that's the big bull that we want to get in tomorrow and sit there and listen to him interact for an hour or two hours, you will learn his the nuances of his bugle and that will put you a leg up uh, in the next couple days as you're trying to target that bull because you know his voice. Yeah. And... You know, it, it 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 absolutely can be done. Um, we do it all the time. Um, and it takes quite a bit of time to sit there and really listen to all the different bugles and his characteristics. You know, maybe he finishes on a chuckle or, may, you know, there's you can you can hear those bulls and get to recognize those bulls. So that's that's a tactic that I would say guys could use on, uh, you know, brighter moon uh, phases. And, um, you know, this is all good topic, topic of conversation. Um, Chris, I really appreciate all of your insight. And I want to give you a chance again to um, tell the listeners how they can find you. And more specifically, um, you, you gave a break to the J. Scott Outdoors uh, podcast listeners uh, last episode and I want to make sure that they have the opportunity to take advantage of the, you know, the elk module with the discount, I believe, is $20. Well, it's a, well, it's a 20% discount, which then translates into, yeah, the elk module is like 20 bucks, and then the annual full year full access is 40 bucks. So, yeah, it's a good deal. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great it's, deal. It, it's a great deal. Uh, and, you know... I, I want to be clear, um, I, I am not getting paid one single dime to promote uh, your business. Uh, I believe in your business, and I, I just want it to be clear that I'm kind of like the guy that emailed, I want to tell my listeners, you know, you got to invest in this resource because for me, it's 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 groundbreaking. It's it's stuff that I wish I like the email said. I wish I would have uh, heard 15 years ago. Well, and and yeah, the uh, first of all, thank you. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. I you know I've over these years that we've kind of talked and I've gotten to know each other. Um, I mean, I I look at you. I mean, you guys are down there in, in Arizona just playing with some just giant bulls, and so I'm envious on that. But. You know, it, it, it's glad. I'm very happy to hear that some of what you've been able to pick up on the module helped you and your hunters. You know, I mean, again, you're talking about somebody that, that waited 20 years to draw a tag, and goodness gracious, you're, you know, you're not out there for meat at that point. You're, I mean, you want the meat, but you're out there for a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. And if that can help, you know, capitalize on that for some folks, I mean, that just that tickles me to no end. So. No, I appreciate it, and yeah, absolutely. If anybody just types in, they obviously just go to rowhuntingresources.com, R-O-E, huntingresources.com, 
and then you can just sign in or sign up, and if in in there it'll talk about a promo code, just all one word, J Scott Podcast. It'll just knock twenty percent off, and and away you go. And and I want to make a point here. Um, you also have a whole new uh, bunch of videos that you are in the process of loading into the module, yeah. and which makes an already exhaustive, and I mean that in a good word, uh, module with lots of resource there. Uh, you're loading even more content on there as we speak. Yeah, and and one of the things that you know I I think we talked about last time and this time I know is the fact that. You know, like I talk about with the, with the Glonk and some of the other stuff, I am always out there. Well, you said it yourself. The, the more you know, the more you learn, the, the, the real, you realize the less you know. And, and I think the, the relevant fact of that is, is you're always learning and you're always testing what you've known and, and trying to prove it or, or disprove it. And that's kind of what we do with this stuff is try to get the best information out there. And I just loaded a video that updates one of the vocalizations that I talk about, you know, it's it's the it's the vocalization that most people talk about when they talk about an estrus mew or estrus scream or estrus whine or estrus whatever. Um, I don't, I think you know, I don't buy into that, and I can show you why on video. However, I just posted an, uh, an update to that that I think people are going to find interesting because the more that we watch it, I'm not convinced that that's a standalone vocalization. I think it might just be a progression of one of the previous vocalizations we already talked about. So. That's the type of stuff that we're always doing in there. We're always adding more stuff and, and, and trying to push the envelope on what we know, what we understand, and get, give you guys the best information possible. So, yeah, I posted an update that very well may change or contradict or at least supplement some of the previously held stuff that we talked about before. So, Well, I appreciate all your work, and um, thanks for your support of the podcast, yeah, and yeah. continue continue doing the great work that you're doing, and uh, I know we've got a lot of other topics to talk about that we'll talk about on future episodes, one of which is... Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a special episode with a good friend of the podcast, Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. Chris, how are you doing? Doing all right, my friend. How are you? Doing pretty good. You know, we've um, had you on for a turkey episode and two elk episodes, and uh, guys keep uh, sending me messages asking for more, and I uh, thought I'd have you on again we're uh, getting pretty darn close to um, elk se- archery elk season starting and thought it would be a great opportunity to have you on the podcast again. And I just uh, was on row hunting resources in the elk module and uh, watched uh, several of the new videos. One was uh, very, very uh, gut-wrenching, uh, the High Country Redemption showing your season last year and um, you know, to watch the highs and lows and, and the ups and downs, it's something that all of us that have hunted have been through, and I thought you captured uh, the essence of the hunt and the essence of the situation. Uh, it, you know, you just you captured it perfectly, and it, the crazy thing is you were all by yourself, and you were able to capture all of that um, you know, the true highs and lows with the, with the lows being the lowest of lows and 
um, that was that was kind of an amazing hunt. Um, I, I, I really appreciated you posting that, and you know, it's it's not often that we see uh, on on YouTube or on hunting shows um, those low points, and the reality is. As hunters, it's something that we all face, and and you know the the people that have not faced it yet, they're gonna. Um, they just have to hunt hunt long enough. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of people will be able to relate to it. Yeah, and and for those that haven't watched it yet, it yeah, it's in the elk module. But basically, and actually, it was my 2012 hunt. It was a it was kind of the I've been sitting on it for a while because, like you said, I mean, it's not something that's that's fun to watch and. For those who haven't seen it, I guess let me just kind of take a step back. Yeah, I I shot this bull 11 yards. I thought the shot was perfect. I mean, it's 11 yards. Come on, it's 11 yards. And he was walking past me. I stopped him. He was court. He he kind of went by me a little bit, and I knew he was quartering away. And I shot, and I thought I smoked him. I thought I put it right straight through his lungs and basically caught the offside leg because I went and found my arrow and you know it's covered in bubbles. You know, it's covered. It's you know it's pastor so arrows covered in blood. But there's bubbles all over the veins and all over the arrows and so in the arrow. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, double lung hit. He's toast. And he you know he runs down the hill and then stops. And I and he, where he stops, I can't get another shot into him. But he stops and he just stands there. And he stands there and he stands there and stands there. And so like minutes go by and I, and I'm. It, yeah, every second that the clock ticks, now I'm like, something is not right. He should be just piled over. Well, the whole second half, you know, the first half of the video is very uh, consistent with the instructional stuff that we do on the module. It, it, there's a lot of instruction in, you know, why I'm where I am, how am I doing it, why am I doing it, why am I calling this way, and et cetera, et cetera. By the way, that was a textbook call-in. I mean, um you know, yeah. you were dictating the pace. You were waiting on him. You weren't over calling. Uh, I thought, you know, I love how you just let the camera run so people can actually realize the timing. Yes. Because yes, I think I think so much. There's so much out there on how to call elk, but the reality is there's not a lot in the timing. And I think one of the things that I picked up, and not to get off the subject of what we're talking about, but uh, I really like the fact that you let that bull think about it you let him think about it and then he finally hits you and then you kind of answered back a, a, a little bit you know with 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 some emotion and but to see that textbook call in with the little um, the few amount of calls that you actually gave was was pretty cool well and and i thank you i mean because it, it is when i'm sharing the video and you kind of just touched on it. What you see on TV, on the outdoor outdoor channel or, or sportsman's channel or whatever, you, you've got, what is it, 23 minutes, 22 minutes or 23 minutes of footage that you've got to pack in, and it, you can't think around. So you just, you're just touching the highlights, bam, 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 bam. And so when you see somebody call in an elk, you're, they're usually, here we are, we set up, we made some calls, ooh, the bull bugled, now he's in front of us, ooh, we killed him. Well, yeah, but that may have just taken you 10, 15, 20, however long it took. And so there's a balance on what you show and how you show it. And one thing that I've, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly. Well, I guess I can't say I learned. I, I just committed to it. The time that lags in between me making a call and maybe the bull answering or between me making a call and the bull actually coming in, I think is important for people to see 
because that shows you that, yes, you do need to have some patience in letting setups work. Now, there's some videos I show, uh, like the 108 video and the strategies and actions that, yeah, I mean, literally within six minutes, I located the bull and the bull was seven steps in front of me. I mean, it was just bam, right now. However, you know, this one and some of the other ones, I mean, it, it takes, you know, 10 minutes for that. I mean, I'm, I'm, Within a hundred yards of him, he's probably you know eighty yards from me at this point. You know when he first when I first started calling, it takes some time. Well, showing that there's a lot of there's a lot of educational benefit from that. But by the same token, you're you're sitting there watching a bunch of nothing happen for eight minutes or ten minutes or whatever. But you but that's why I put the commentary in there. Okay, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is why I'm patient. This is why I'm letting this work up. You know, we're, we're, let this setup work a little bit. Okay, the bull just did this. This is what he's thinking. Okay, so there's a lot of ed education to it. And, and there, you know, I was worried when I first started that people would not appreciate the length that I allow the camera to go. But what I've got, what I've received as feedback is that is why people absolutely love it because now they get to see exactly what I see. I don't edit. The only time I edit stuff out, 99.9% .9 of the time, the only time I edit stuff out is if I am moving from one point to the other and it's just random just movement. There's nothing, okay, I'm making my way closer to the book. Well, and a lot of times, too, you'll give a time lapse of, okay, five minutes yep. has expired, yep. or ten minutes, or I just got over here in 30 seconds. Yep. So, yep. you know, I, I, I think it's very important for people to understand that guys that are successful at calling, whether it be elk or turkeys, that it does. you don't just make a call and they just run in. Sometimes that happens, yep. but most of the time you have to finesse and you have to work those animals, and I think what I like so much about the strategies and actions, the videos, is it's, it's taking a real-life situation and you're playing the whole thing. So, so if you watch all the different videos, you kind of get a sense of, okay, that one was quick, okay, that one uh, you know, took longer, and I think it gives people a more realistic view of actually how the guys that consistently call stuff in, how they, how they handle it. If, if, if you just heard an elk bugle and the next thing you know, which I gotta be honest, most of my videos, I just show the elk coming in when they finally, you know, made their approach and, and are, are coming right in, I just cut right to the, yeah. you know, cut right to the chase. But the reality is, from an educational standpoint, the timing is, I believe, as important as the sounds you're making. Uh, and absolutely, absolutely. I, I think too many people uh, expect it to happen right now, and, oh, he's not coming, and boom, they're off, you know, either going at him, you nailed and it. they walk right into him. Yep. Or they, you know, leave and think that bull is not worth going after. I think people need to realize that most elk don't just come running over. Just like uh, when your wife calls at you, most of the time, you don't just, I mean, jump up and go running over. Yeah. Or if your buddy calls you, you know, you're going you're gonna to work your way that way, but you may also, you know, stop and grab your french fries off the counter or grab a drink or whatever. Yeah. Just like the elk. You know, they may be going, okay, I'm going to go over there and see that cow, but I'm going to get a few more blades of grass here, and, you know, oh, by the way, i got to get a drink, and oh, i got to take a leak, and I'm on my way. Or, in, in uh, like I show in the video of the Shiner Bull, you know, originally I got that, that whole sequence, um, and I thought it was pretty boring, until I kind of took a step back and watched it. I'm like, no, 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 
it, yeah, it's not a sexy call-in, but what it showed was how, because it was open and the way that the train was, you could sit and watch the bull and what he was doing. The bull was interested. He knows where I am, but he just stands there and he looks and he's waiting to see the cow that he hears me calling. He's waiting to see the cow move. He's waiting to see some action. Pete, and what you, you just said that people move in too quick. And I totally agree with that because there's, I mean, again, there's a lot of emphasis on aggressive tactics. People want to go, 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 go. Okay. Well, that's fine. But keep in mind that you may make a vocalization and whether he bugles at you or he doesn't, if he hears you, and if you, I mean, if you've been loud enough, and he hears you, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, he's going to pick his head up, he's going to be staring in your direction, he's going to have his ears locked, he's going to be looking and listening, and it's incredible. If you didn't sit and watch these videos, it's incredible to see some bulls just how long they stand and wait, and so having the patience to let the setup work is crucial for at least in my in my opinion for my success how I do things that that's crucial and that's why I kind of let things run as long as they run but you know to kind of bring it back to what we you know where we started you know those that section of the hunt you know when you find them you call them and you bring them in and you kill them yay that's the fun awesome part but for this particular video that you're talking about, the whole second half of that video, I, well, to be honest with you, that's it's 2012. I've sat on it for three years. Why? Because I didn't know if I wanted to share it. I mean, it, it's not. I mean, I I'll, I'll tell people I broke down. I just I I kind of lost it for a little bit. I mean, when you're saying the low of the lows, I mean for 16 hours, you know, trying to pick a part of a mountain and sitting there waiting and second guessing myself and trying to figure out what's going on, and then I think I found him, and no, I didn't, and then I you know run the mountain. I oh here it comes. Oh, I did find him, and oh geez, now what am I going to do for the next 15 minutes? And how am I going to make this happen? And then all of a sudden it happens, and then uh, it it was it was an emotional roller coaster, and I and I really, I mean it's not that's not something that you normally show, but I I was going. Uh, let me let me just say this, Jay. I was going to post it for the module guys, and I think I had gotten myself to that point where I was going to post it and share it, because I think there's a lot of lessons in it that's valuable. However, I will say that, you know, one of the things that gave me confidence, I don't want to say confidence, that, that kind of reassured me and, and kind of made me smile, was your podcast with Stephen Ronella. That, you know, he was talking about that when he got, you know, first started going, you know, they had those hunts that he thought were miserably unsuccessful. But yet the producers are like, oh, no, this is awesome. And people loved seeing the hardship of the hunt. They loved seeing the fact that not every hunt is successful. It related to them. And so I think that's why, you know, I'm a, I am in a happier place, if you will, about what I put together in this video, how I presented it, the fact that, yeah, I shared some, I mean, we got the bull. Let's just, I mean, we got the bull and no, got the bull, got the meat yep, and got everything. Everything was, yeah. everything was fine. It, it worked out, but th I think it's relatable. Like you said, if you have not come, if you have never been in the situation where you, you made a marginal hit, you just haven't hunted long enough. It will happen at some point. Now, the, the big question is now what? Now, what, what are you going to be able to follow through and do what it takes to get it done and, and finish the job? 
Well, and I, I think watching the video brought up so many questions and comments from myself in, in you know, things and thinking about situations that I've been in. I've got a couple questions that I want to ask you about the scenario when the bull was coming in, and, and I'm curious to ask to see your answer. Okay. When the bull committed and came through the opening in which you, you knew with the trails and such that he was going to come through, um, he then breaks into more of an opening. He looked like he was slightly downhill from you. He was walking from your left to, or excuse me, from your right to left. And he finally came, he, there was one tree that he had to clear, and he finally comes walking, in, which is going to make him in the wide open. One question I would have from you from a situational standpoint, at that point, if you would have already been at full draw, what do you think the outcome would have been? Would you have shot earlier, or would you have still kind of waited for him to swing? Because no, I yeah. kind of like the quartering away shot that you had. Yeah. But but you would have been able to, if he would have stopped, um, you know, and looked around, you would have been able to zip him if you were at full draw. Give me your thoughts on that. Absolutely. That And, yeah, the answer, quick answer, yes. Even now, when I watch it now, I sit there and beat myself up going, why are you not drawing your bow and why are you not stopping him right there? And you know, I think you know this from cameras, angles, up and down angles, it's hard, unless you're looking lateral to the mountain, it's really hard to really get a feel, you know, a real appreciation of how steep something is. I literally, I might as well have been sitting in a tree stand. That was okay. That was okay. Extremely sharp downhill. I mean, he and that doesn't come out as no. much in the video because of the the uh, probably because of how wide of an angle exactly. it was. It doesn't come out exactly. And and a lot of times with photographs, when you're looking downhill, you just don't appreciate it. So that's why and I, you know, part of my conundrum in that whole situation was the fact that I'm like, why is there no blood trail? I know my shot was you know, entered high. And it had to come out low. And so I'm thinking, you should be just draining blood left and right. But anyway, no, you're absolutely right. I am, There's a lot of people that talk about a quartering away shot. And they like the idea that you can go through more of their lungs and, and more of their chest cavity. However, that there's a fine line on how steep that angle gets. I yeah. truly believe, I, I like a broadside shot. Because if, I do too. if you mess up left or right a couple inches you're still going to go through the the heart lungs. You're, you're still going to go through the heart lungs. However, you start putting a, a strong quartering away angle, if you, like me, I don't know how I did it, Jay, I don't know how I did it. Uh, the sun, uh, now, well, let me finish my thought, and then I'll, then I'll kind of take a segue a minute. Right? So a hard quartering away angle if you vary yourself a couple inches, you could significantly affect whether that arrow goes through one lung or it hits the liver and then goes out the, the far lung. You know what I mean? Just, just the way right. the angle is. So right. I would much, much rather shoot them broadside. Now, in this case, I'm not making excuses. All I, all I will say is, I got the camera turned around, and this is the thing when you're doing a solo, uh, you know, you do it yourself solo. I'm filming myself. I'm hunting myself. I'm doing everything myself. So I got the camera moved around, and the bull steps out, and he clears. And so I get the release on the string. Hindsight 2020, I should have just drawn that bow. 
if he saw me, he would have stopped and looked, and it would have been over. But I thought, at that time, I, from what I remember, I thought, I will let him just walk by me a little bit, just so I'm kind of behind his peripheral vision, and then I'll stop him. Well, when I gave him that chuckle to stop him, he took two or three more steps and turned to go down the hill and then stopped. Well, he was out. Of, he was more out of position than I would have liked, and so no hindsight being twenty twenty, I would have just stopped. I would have drawn my bow and and stopped him right down below me to where he was broadside, and I would have just smoked him. And if I had made a bad shot and I was a couple inches off, it still would have would have double lunged him right then and there. And I don't think he would have died in in the frame. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, okay, and then the next thing is, and obviously you know that it's easy to look back at a video and be an armchair quarterback, but being an armchair quarterback, looking back at the video, okay, so you hit him, he kind of runs quarters down and kind of goes around, and you can just kind of see his head over there in the bushes, and he's standing. I think you put on the screen, that's when you knew something wasn't right. Yep. My question for you is, so... In that situation, if you would have absolutely double-lunged him, more than likely when he was over there standing still, he would have been wobbling and then started doing the funky chicken and yep. he would have tumbled over. Yep. At the point when you realize that that was not the case, now this is what I'm going to say. I always tell people, because I've had to go through this the hard way, um, no matter what, unless you see the elk fall, you wait a minimum of 30 minutes before you even attempt to go closer, to look for tracks, look for your arrow. And and you may have cut. I don't know how the timing of the scene was. I want to get your take on either this situation or other situations. If you don't see that bull fall in eyesight, how long do you typically wait before you make a move? Absolutely, I agree with you 100%, a minimum of 30 minutes, and I'm telling you, if you haven't been in that situation, 30 minutes might as well be six days. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's just forever, and so you're like, oh, it's 20, it's 20 minutes, it's good enough. No, minimum 30, I actually like to set and say, okay, 45 minutes to an hour, and yes, what? You, and, and this is a part that I did kind of truncate and cut down. I went down, uh, in this video, I shoot, he's standing there, I say, okay, he's been there long enough, standing there, that something's not right, I'm going to kind of swing around, I'm going to drop down, I'm going to try to get another arrow in him, I'm going to see if I can do something. And so, as I go down, um, it doesn't work, he was out of position, blah, 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 I pick up my arrow, I see my arrow, it's covered with, with bubbles, which most, you know, if, if you've got bubbles on your arrow, you say, okay, lung hit, well... I did. I waited about 30 minutes, a little bit more than that, and then I went down and started following. Here's the other thing that I will say. Blood does not lie. Yeah. I had air, I had bubbles on my arrow. Yes, that indicates uh, a lung hit. However, it does not indicate whether I hit a front lung, middle lung, or the tip top of the back edge of a lung. Depending on where you hit a lung, is gonna, it, there's a huge variation on what that animal's going to do. If I punch the front of the lungs and I go right around the bronchial tubes and all the arteries that are around there, that bull is going to die within sight. 
if I hit him mid lungs, just a, you know, just a center punch those lungs, it's away from the heart. He's going to die, and he's going to die pretty quick, but he's going to be able to move a little bit. He's going to move off a little ways. But if you catch the very tip, top, back of those lungs, or worse yet, you catch one lung, oh my gosh, they can go a long way. So my, and, and I, I look at this, and I, and I, I watch this video, I'm like, Chris, you know better. You know, I, I looked at the arrow, I said, I, I thought in my mind's eye, I thought I made a good shot. I, I still, I was like, I saw where the arrow went. It looked to me, it went through both lungs. And so when I found my arrow and it had bubbles on it, in my mind, I'm like, no, it went through both lungs. He should be dead. But when I showed the blood trail, and I'll bet you, you picked up on this. I pick, I pick up on it when I watch the video. I looked at it, I'm like, that's liver blood. It's dark, dark red. Yep, it's a deep, yep. And I was like, that's liver blood. If you see liver blood... Just stop. Yep. Just stop. And just give him an hour or two. I'm serious. Because he's if, he, if it's a liver shot, he's going to go a short ways, and he's going to bed down. He's not going to yep. feel good. He's going to be sick. Just give him a couple hours. Even if he doesn't die within those couple hours, he's going to get sick. He's going to get stiffened up. He's not going to feel well. And he's going to be a little bit easier to approach when you do try to follow them up. I think there's a bunch of lessons to be learned, and I think this video is probably going to be one of the most um, talked about and most uh, coveted videos of, of the members uh, of the elk module of Row Hunting Resources because there's so many lessons to be learned from this. And I think one of them is you touched on it perfectly. Just because you have bubbles does not mean dead bull. Yeah. What it means is you've hit lungs. You don't know if you have double lung or single lung. If if you double lung them, most of the time they fall within sight. And, and the distance in which it looked like that bull ran and was standing over there, that's long enough for you to say, to think, probably not double lung. Although he could have just walked behind that one tree and, and been laid down there and you wouldn't have known it. Yep. I think people need to to know this. If you see dark red, that's most all the time liver. If you get bubbles, yes, that's lung, but it doesn't necessarily mean both lungs. Yeah. So a, an elk on one lung can do amazing things. I've seen it I, I've seen it in rifle situations, I've seen it in, in archery situations, and one lung, you're in you are in for a long road, so you have to be patient. Yeah. Um I, I think one thing it's important to note in that situation also, let's say that you know that, let's say it's right before dark and you're real questionable about your hit. One of the things that I would say in that same scenario, and you, I want you to weigh in on this, is you have to be very um, careful that when you walk out to go to, to, to camp to leave that bull, say if you have to leave him overnight, in my opinion, you want to walk 180 degrees the opposite direction the last place you saw the bull. Yep. Because if you don't go directly away from where you saw the bull, you have a chance of jumping that bull up. And I will say from experience of, of just elk hunting with, with friends and, and, and clients and what have you, if you jump a bull up wherever he's hit, your chances of finding him, in my opinion, just dropped at least 
Yep. I, I, Jay, I, I, again, man, I agree with you. Um, and in the video, you know, I, I did the follow-up. I walked up. I said, okay, I, I, he was standing here. You see the blood pool. I watched him disappear right around this corner. I'm going to sneak up there. I'm going to see. Well, as soon as I take a couple steps, I can see the bull. He's still on his feet. He's alive. So I try to make a play to, to get another arrow into him. It doesn't work. He spooks, takes off down the hill. At that point, I do. You see me. I cut back, and, and I'm way up on the mountain, and you nailed it. I talk about this, and it's, it's interesting. It's the same exact principle. I talk about this with turkey hunting. I talk about elk hunting. You'll hear people talk about, you know, setting up, calling, getting a response that's close, and then moving forward to get set up or moving left or right to get set up. And I have been caught sometimes. You take two steps forward. You take two steps left or right. And all of a sudden, there might be a, uh, an alley, a, ch- uh, a channel, or a, just a click, just the way the trees line up. Where, think, there he is. He might be 100 yards away, but now, bam, he just saw you. And you're busted. The same goes in this situation because they will do squirrely things. And this bull, he did a huge button hook around. And yeah, if, if you just say, well, I'm out of here and I just go, if you're not cognizant of how you're getting out of there, you absolutely could either, either run into him and bump him or even worse yet, just have your scent drift over him to where he just picks up and he just sneaks out of there, and then you don't even hear a direction where he goes. We had in 2002, I remember this very, very clearly. In 2002, I was hunting with a buddy down in southern Colorado where it's very, very hot. I mean, we're talking 90-plus degrees in the afternoons. And same situation. Bull came in. We called a bull in. Um, He made a shot. Ended up being pretty much almost identical shot like this one. The bull took off. We tracked it. Could not find it. So we backed out of there, decided to leave. Well, we came back the next morning, and we started with a, with a different sunlight, just different light coming through the trees. We stopped right where he had stopped or where he had shot the bull. We're standing there getting a game plan. I look up the hill, and I'm like, I don't remember a rock being up there. I put my binoculars up, and the bull's just laying there. He, the bull's laying 100 yards from us, right from where we, where we, where we shot him. He did this huge almost circle and came back. Well, if we hadn't, we, we went a little ways, we tracked him. As soon as we realized we couldn't find him, we were like, we're out. And we just slipped back. We just got out of there and just went and backtracked out the same way we came in. He never even saw us. He stayed there and he died and, and everything was good. But I agree wholeheartedly. When, when you realize that you need to back out, back out 180 degrees from the direct, I mean, just completely opposite of where you think that bull might end up. And in this case, I did. I just climbed, I just got out and I just climbed three quarters of the way up the mountain just to make sure my scent wasn't out there. But here's the other thing that I mentioned, and I don't know if I touched on it enough, but I mentioned in there, part of the other reason why I climbed up the mountain was I wanted to get a a vantage point. Because if that animal was still up on his feet and just kind of moseying and just trying to get out of dodge, I wanted to be able to get above that timber and get myself in a spot where I, you know, I'm going to... You could watch Yep, I'm just going to sit and watch and make sure he does not leave this patch of timber. If I don't see him leave the patch of timber, then at least I have some sort of semblance of confidence in the morning that he's got to be in there somewhere. So that's another thing, too, is I know you talk about glass and... um, you know, with elk where you are, but, you know, for the high country stuff, sometimes, man, 
getting yourself out of there and at an advantage point and just sit and wait and let things get, you know, come back the next morning, but sit and wait and watch until dark and make sure they don't leave. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely trying to get a bead on direction because direction a lot of times is everything. And I think, uh, you know, and I, I'm giving this advice humbly, trying to, to, to give advice that I've seen through experiences, but I am in no means, you know, some uh, great tracker. I, I do uh, uh, pride myself on trying to be very detail-oriented, and I have in situations where you know, I've I've been asked to come help buddies or what have you try and find elk. I have had pretty good success. One thing I would tell people, and we're getting a little bit off subject, but we're kind of in, in the realm of the subject, is Chris talked about in the video how the bull just through the pine needles just didn't leave any tracks. And that is absolutely at times will baffle you and you will think there's no way the elk came through here. Chris saw the elk go through there and he still couldn't find tracks. So what do you do if you don't find tracks? Okay, so what I do is I always like to go back to last blood and I always like to follow whatever track that I can follow from there. Even if there's a bunch of tracks going every direction, a lot of times I'll try and pick the same size track and try and use the direction that the elk is going and follow that track until I pick up some more sign. Blood, uh, you know, where they've been drooling, different stuff that you can, you can follow. But I think it's important to make note that when you are following tracks, they, you know, they have to leave a track. They may go through a period 20, 30 yards where you can't see the track, but you will eventually find their tracks. They leave tracks. So a lot of times you have to get on your hands and knees and go one step at a time. Uh, I, I learned uh, there's a guy from uh, Utah, Lynn Hunt, who Kanab, Utah, who uh, is an incredible tracker, has a reputation of an incredible tracker. And one of the things uh, when a friend of mine shot a bull and, and Lynn was camped nearby and we went over and got him. And, and one of the things I learned was, was the, the, he got on the bull's tracks kind of where uh, before it was hit and kind of got a feel for the stride of the bull. And then as I watched him track, he was kind of knowing where the, the front foot would step, knowing where the back foot, and I would see him kind of with his hands kind of just walking, and he was striding that bull. And it's worked for me several times where you, you kind of get a sense of the bull's stride, and, and you, the tracks don't lie. So you have to get on the tracks, and then a lot of times, once you follow a track for a hundred or couple hundred yards, boom, then you find another drop of blood, then you bring your GPS over, you know, you've got your last blood, and then, you know, you have to take it slow when you're, when you're um, tracking a wounded animal. You have to take it really slow, and you have to be very detail-oriented, and don't let anybody that's helping you get out in front of you and be making circles. There's a time to make grids, like Chris will show in the video, uh, there's times for that when, when you've exhausted everything else. But if you can always go back to last blood and try and get on the tracks, that is your best chance to find a, a, a wounded animal. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, and I guarantee you have a similar situation uh, where you are, you know, in my situation. Now, and again, not making excuses, I will say I am not at that level. 
I, I've, I'm, I'm with you. I've seen some guys that are just incredible at just, and they're like, nope, there's a track. Well, if you ever hunted Africa and you watch those, those trackers out there, I mean, my gosh, they just, uh, they just make you look pathetic. But there are some, it's an art form. I mean, it really is, and there's some, there's, it, I've even watched some guys that they'll just lay, I mean, they'll flat lay on the ground, just lay on the ground. They're not looking for the track per se, they're just looking at where the needles got pushed up slightly more than they should be. You know what I mean? They're just, I yep. mean, it's just, the other, the other thing too is sometimes you're going to get situations where all of a sudden the elk is going to run through areas where it's just littered with tracks. And so in my situation here, I, I mean, he went through the pine needles. I, I still, I couldn't believe that I couldn't, I was not able to see. I couldn't, I just couldn't discern anything until, and then all of a sudden he got down, you know, where he went, all of a sudden got into an area where, I mean, my gosh, there had been a whole pile of elk piling through there and in fresh tracks. So the other thing that I will do, me personally, and this is not foolproof, I will say that right now, but if you lose the track, see kind of what, you know, look back, and I will mark with toilet paper or whatever, I will mark those spots of blood so that way I can look behind me and I can actually see the, the path. Visually, I can see flag, 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 flag of where the blood spots are and where he's traveling. And if he's moving at a decent clip, a lot of times you can just say, okay, that momentum is going to continue in kind of a general manner. So I'll turn around, I'll look and say, okay, where is the likely avenue that he went through? You know, sometimes you say, okay, well, there's the trail. Uh, he's been on this trail. The trail continues. He's probably still on the trail. And so right. you might be able to follow it 50, 60, 80 yards or more, and all of a sudden, boink, here's a drop of blood. You may not have had any sign that you were able to discern in that distance, but because it was a continuation of a logical progression, you were able to pick it up. However, that's if the animal is moving at a good clip. Typically, in my experience, if they're moving at a good clip, they will continue that momentum. However, but if all of a sudden you get down to where it's, you know, drop, 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 and they are just walking and standing and walking and standing and walking and standing, don't automatically assume that they're just going to take the, the easy route because that's where I've seen them start wandering and just doing all sorts of squirrely things where you're like, why the heck did you just walk through here? You just walked through a blowdown. Why did you walk? You know, but they did. So take note of how the animal is moving, not just where the blood is. Is he moving quickly? Like you talk about the stride. Is he, is he, is he have that consistent stride? Or is he slowed down? Does it look like he's starting to wander? Does he? Is it look like he's standing there watching his back trail, figuring out what's going on, and is he adjusting accordingly? Because if and that's the other thing too, if you start following that trail too early, he may be mortally wounded. He might be he he might be a dead bull on you walking. But if you start following too quickly and he's up on his feet, he's going to be watching his back trail. And if he detects that something is following his back trail. That's when they start, they start button hooking around. They start climbing. They start dropping. They start, they start doing all sorts of squirrely things to get themselves into a position where they're out of the line of sight, but they can sit and watch where they just came from and keep tabs on whoever, whatever predator, whether it's me or whether it's a bear or anybody else, is following behind them. And if you're following too soon, 
you're just going to continually bump, 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 bump that elk, and you'll never even realize you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, Chris, I want to... I, I want to tell you that that video, like I said, is awesome, and I think you're going to get a lot of great feedback from the video, and I, I really appreciate you posting it. Uh, I know the elk module, the Row Hunting Resources guys, uh, the members are going to love that. Uh, I want to shift focus a little bit um, and talk to you a little bit about uh, Selfish Mew versus the Estrus Scream. I noticed mm -hmm. in the module uh, you talk about that, and we don't have to go into super detail um, but it's interesting. You may have seemed to have changed a bit of your understanding of of those two different calls. Yeah, you know, and I think that's again the beauty of videoing everything that we do and going out and just videoing raw behavior. Not even in a hunting situation, just videoing and recording vocalizations and behavior repeatedly. Um. We started seeing you now for people that don't understand. You'll you'll hear people talk about the estrus mew, the estrus wine, the estrus scream, estrus whatever. I do not subscribe to that terminology per se. I do not believe there is a specific vocalization that actually relays estrus anything. Now it doesn't mean that this vocalization exists. You, I, we've got video of it, and there's other people that share video of it. It's not saying that the vocalization that that really meow, that really raspy loud, long, drawn-out, you know, scream or, or mew that you'll hear people talk about. Yes, cow elk will do that. I just don't think, and I can show you why, but I don't think it has anything to do with asterisk. Now, that's not to say that I don't, I, I'm, I'm not going to criticize anybody that wants to call it that or wants to associate with that because it can if a, if Well, a, Chris, let's, let, let's look at it from a perspective of, uh, you know, I think Steve Chappell's got some uh, great video of an elk doing that, and, and, and I think uh, Will Primos, I think, is the one that, that coined the term estrus, estrus scream, uh, you know, yeah. then it was the Chappell scream, and and I, I, I will be honest, at the time, I, I think it was an incredible marketing yes. uh, strategy to say that, because who doesn't want to have a call... Yes that mimics the estrus sound. Yes. Now, in everybody's defense, I don't think anybody did anything to try and mislead. Nope. I think it, it, it nope. could be very well argued that it is the estrus sound, but I think you're right in that we hear that sound in other situations that are not even, not even in the breeding period at all. Yes, exactly. So I think that leads me to kind of think what you're saying is it's more of the selfish mew yep. and 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 a, and a cow that really wants attention well really is demanding attention for for whatever reason exactly and and we actually even in the uh on the video there uh, elk herd on the move there is a large group of cows and calves they're all moving together they have a very large you know a very mature herd bull right there and here are these cows doing that vocalization with the bull standing behind them he isn't even paying two cents of attention to him, and they have no care in the world about this bull, but they stop doing it when? When the calf shows up. And so that's what I started really looking at. I'm like, well, hold on a minute. You know, people were always saying that it's a unique vocalization. And at first, when we, when we first started the elk module, I was like, all right, well, I, I, can, I can go with that. Um, I'll, I'll buy into that. 
ideology, if you will, or that idea or theory, if you will, but I don't think it has to do with estrus anything. However, over time, what we started looking at is if you see when they start, when they do this vocalization in the situations that they're in, what they're trying to accomplish, who they're communicating with, what the update video talks about is I am not convinced anymore that in fact it is its own particular vocalization. It very well may be just nothing more than an extension of a lost mew that just carries the intensity higher, 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 and higher. So if you look at the progression of vocalizations, you know, you've got the lost mew. Everybody talks about the lost mew, and it's legit. It's, you know, looking for a response. Um, but then, you know, the cows, they can take that lost mew. They can be louder with it. They can drag it out longer. They can add those frustrated whines to it and add that emotion. They can do, you know, long mews. They can stretch it out and really be a little bit, you know, what some people call pleading with it. But yet, when you still continue up that continuum, at some point, you can only get so loud. At some point, you can only drag it out so much. Whereas, if all you do is you add a little bit of a growl to it, you've just increased that intensity. You've increased that. You've you've well increased the intensity, and you've changed that intensity to the utmost level. It really does coincide with everything that a lost mew does. It's just extremely intense. And so that's kind of where I'm starting to think, you know, rethink myself on saying, I don't know if it's actually a standalone vocalization. I really do. I'm, I'm, think, I'm changing my mind now to where I really do think it's nothing more than an extension of the intensity level of a lost mew. Yeah, that's awesome stuff right there, Chris. Um, I think in our next episode, we're going to talk about getting ready for elk season, trail cameras, uh, using glassing as an effective tactic uh, for hunting elk. I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your targeted strategies. Sure. Um, but, I, but I think we've had a great episode here, and I think people are going to enjoy it. And, uh, you know, um, Chris, I'd like you to uh, uh, tell the listeners uh, how they can find you uh, and uh, the best way to get a hold of you. Yeah, they can just, you know, the best way to get um, with, a, with the elk module stuff is just go to www.rowhuntingresources.com, just R-O-E, huntingresources.com. Uh, they can also find us on YouTube. We have our YouTube channel that's Row Hunting Resources. We have our Facebook page that's Row Hunting Resources, Instagram, the whole nine yards. But if they want to get in the module, just go to www.rowhuntingresources.com. And like always, you know, for you guys, you, anybody who's listening to this, we, we offer a 20% discount off of it. All you need to do is when you go to sign up, just there's a little spot there that says, you know, if you want to put out a coupon code or a promo code or something like that, just click on that and just, just, J Scott podcast, all one word, J Scott podcast and knocks 20% off and, and away you go. So, and I, I think I might add too that, um, as extensive as the elk module is in the spring, I get a real kick out of the Turkey module. Uh, I'm not much of a whitetail hunter, but I know that the whitetail portion of the module with the behavioral and all the different, uh, 
stuff is just as extensive. So uh, you have uh, the Row Hunting Resources membership, which is the full membership. I believe it's a one-year membership. Yep. You can correct me. And then uh, they can also sign up for the elk module, the turkey module, and the deer module on their own. Is that correct? That's right. And and most pe- you're absolutely right. Most people... Um, yeah, if you want it year long, if you just want the full library card, and that's how kind of I, I kind of classify this. Basically, what you're doing for the subscription, it, it just gives you a library card that you can get in there and and look at what what's in there. If you just want the elk stuff, you can just get the elk module. It's three months, and you know, it's it, for with with a J Scott podcast discount, it's twenty bucks. I mean, it's pretty cheap. So you can watch it for three months. But if you want everything, you can get the annual subscription. That's 365 days a year. That's that's all year long, and it opens up the turkey module and the the deer module. Now, I will say for everybody, yeah, we've got over 18 hours now of video for elk, but the turkey and the deer are not nearly as big. But there's still really good stuff in there. But you can also, if all you care about in the spring is turkeys, you know, you say you get the elk module now, but you're not, you, you know, in, in the spring, winter, or whatever, you want to get some turkey stuff, yeah. I think that's 15 bucks or something like that. So yeah, you can just, you can log in in three months, just watch the turkey stuff or the deer stuff or whatever you want. So awesome, buddy. Well, um, it's always awesome having you on. We get tons of feedback from, uh, the, the, the three episodes that you've been on, the two, the one turkey and the two, uh, elk episodes, tons and tons of comments and feedback. And, uh, and I know that, uh, people really enjoy, I get, I've gotten emails back from people that have signed up for the row hunting resources modules and, uh, them telling me how thankful they are that I pointed this out to them. And so, you know, kudos to you for the hard work. And, um, I look forward to our next episode. Uh, and, um, it's going to be a great 2015 elk season. And, and the next episode we'll touch on kind of getting prepared for the season and all the different things that you're doing. Um, we're going to talk about trail cameras and glassing. So until then, until then, buddy, uh, God bless you, and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Absolutely. I appreciate the time that you had me on and uh, look forward to it again. So, yeah, God bless.